The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Sensitive listeners should plug their ears with their fingers. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good world, it's time, it's time for another edition of the Subgenre Podcast. On this show, we offer appreciation and time to some frankly underappreciated subcategories of film. And this season, that means movies about time, time travel, timelines, and what have you. We've bowed, we've flexed, we've looped, and we've even turned temporal space backwards. But today we're adding something a little extra. Historical figures. As in each and every episode, I'm your host, Josh Dassel, and today we are time traveling back more than 40 years to a 1979 multi-hyphenate time travel, crime, chase, romance, comedy by director-writer Nicholas Meyer. This time machine of talent stars the on-screen and future married couple of Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen and actor David Warner in the role of the murderous heavy. It's H.G. Wells versus Jack the Ripper with an American love story thrown in for good measure. Break out the sparkle effects. This is Time After Time. And here, live with me in Studio K, is an audiobook narrator, a TikTok creator, an erstwhile podcast producer, and a return guest host who, really, we can always count on when we need it to just not give a f***. It's Charlotte Moore Lambert. You are back on Subgenre Charlotte. Welcome. And we're both sounding amazing today. Aren't we? Yeah. yeah. I think we're both playing hurt, as they say. <laughs> Our heads are full of bullshit. And we're bringing it to the people. And cold medicine. That's <laughs> yeah. the thing oh, I'm yeah. on. Also cold medicine. Yeah. Anyone who listens to this show, I guarantee you, is going to remember the episodes that you have been here for. That would be things like in our first season, our episode four on Crimson Tide, in season two, our very first episode on the Thomas Crown Affair, and uh, at the end of last season, part of our big gang of people who sat around and talked about Ocean's Eleven. And I couldn't do part two for that because I got COVID. Yeah. And now here I am today after my part two of COVID. So I have to stop getting COVID. <laughs> well, you're here in a season where we have been talking about kind of a wide array of time-related films. And yes. so time travel and time bending and timelines and things like that. Yes. Are you generally a fan of this type of film? I generally am not like, I need to go watch a time travel movie tonight. Uh... Well, that's too bad because I'm going to ask you to talk about right. a time machine I've time travel some. movie. I've seen yeah. some. I saw this one. Okay. So when I was thinking about movies to cover this season, there were some that popped to mind immediately, mm -hmm. like Groundhog Day and uh, saw that one, and Somewhere in Time, and even Looper, you know, right. came relatively early. Right. This one did not come to me until somewhere near the end of the list, and I think it was even way down at the bottom until I read the tagline about what oh it was. My God. H.G. Wells chasing Jack the Ripper through time. Right. And I went, I can't not uh, cover this. <laughs> well, when I told my husband I was going to be watching this, he's seen every movie ever. And so I'd asked him if he'd seen this one. And he said, oh, yes, 
it is not a good movie. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sold. And then I watched the movie and I thought it was a fun, enjoyable movie. It might not have been if it had had lesser actors. It had an amazing cast who I think really sold it. And there were moments where the script really sold it. But we'll get into that. Yeah, I think for a movie like this, you got to think this is 79. So for someone to walk through the door and pitch to a studio executive, it's H.G. Wells chasing Jack the Ripper through time in San Francisco, which that's what the movie is about. Yes. I think there are two things that sell that. And like you said, number one is the cast Mm -hmm. and number two is cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. (laughs) Right about this time in the show is where... We usually, what we call set the scene, behind the scenesy stuff before we get to talking about plot. Strangely, this film, which I will say up front is a film I had not really heard of, I hadn't seen. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Had you seen it? But no. You didn't? Okay. You know, and I've seen a fair amount of movies. You've like, seen some. This one totally missed my radar. But for a film that was way off my radar, there is so much background information about I this film. Know. Like good background information. Yeah. And so I'm excited to cover it. Me too. Okay, so let's set the scene on this thing. Okay. As we mentioned, this is a film that came out in 1979. So the production on this film started in September of 78 and was shot in and around San Francisco over the course of about 52 days and ran about 3.5 million on budget if those numbers are 3.5 and 78 dollars. Yeah. So it's not an inexpensive film to make. Yeah. But, you know, reasonable budget for bringing the stars on it that you have and shot this thing around San Francisco. And I gotta say, I love a good San Francisco movie. I have no opinions about a San Francisco movie. You're obviously not a Dirty Harry fan. Well, basically, San Francisco means two things to me. And I'll be able to bring this back full circle. Full house? No, though not not that. But I was going to say Star Trek, because that's yes. where Federation headquarters are. Uh-huh. And gentrification. So some positive feelings, mostly very negative feelings. I blame Starfleet Command for the gentrification. <laughs> They did shoot in and around the terrible city that they you did. hate. They did. They did. That I've never been to. <laughs> Have you never been to it? Uh-uh. Oh, it's a great city. Yeah. It really is. That's what I've heard. Yeah, it's fun. If you can afford it. it right. No, <laughs> you can't. Just know that you can't. Most people can't. After they shot in San Francisco, production then moved back to Burbank. This was a Warner Brothers pick, and so it was shot at the Warner Brothers studios there in and around Burbank. And that's where they did things that didn't really look like San Francisco, like Victorian London and so on. To get geeky about it, this was filmed in Cinemascope. I don't know if you know about or a fan of Cinemascope films. I know of Cinemascope. Big wide. Like big, big wide. Big, big wide. Okay. This is a film that was made to be big. And that's good unless you're watching it like I was on a television and then it all just gets squished. Right. So they recorded in 78, produced it in 78, and then released it a year later. So if they started production, I think 18th of September on 78, it was released or premiered on the 7th of September in 79, premiered in Toronto at the Toronto Film Festival, which at that point was called the Festival of Festivals, which I still think it should be called. Sure. And the expectation was that this film was going to gross a lot of money because time travel and historical property and Malcolm McDowell, who had been in Clockwork Orange, right. you know, other Which things. I also haven't seen. Oh, God. Why are you here? I Go don't home know. and watch Why movies. Why do you ask me to be on this show? I've told you before, I don't watch anything unless someone <laughs> makes me. It was supposed to gross $20 million. It was supposed to make back a lot of money, and it didn't. It really only... Whoa. What? What? <laughs> I know. We'll get into why. 
but only brought back in about $5 million, which was enough to cover the advertising budget on the film, and then we're out of money. Yeah. And the reasoning at the time, which I don't entirely agree with, but the reasoning at the time was it was blamed on the lack of a big star to support this kind of a complicated premise. I of feel like picture. it was a series of character actors. Yes. Minus... Malcolm McDowell, who, if you look not that long before, had done Clockwork Orange, and Clockwork Orange was not a small movie. No, it wasn't. But also, like, what is one other really big movie that Malcolm McDowell has done? A really big one? Uh, Off the top of your head. Time after time. <laughs> so... He's done... So, he's, he's... You're right. He is a character actor for the most part. Yeah. But at least had walked into this one off of something where he wasn't. At this point, sci-fi was entering the big sci-fi era. Like, we've already got Star Wars going on. Close Encounters. Uh, like, Spielberg is about to be Spielberging as hard as he can. The viewer threshold, their expectations for what their sci-fi was going to be was already starting to look really different. And comparatively, when you watch the special effects <laughs> time after time... <laughs> Even by late 70s standards, it's a little uh, shoestringy, you know? It's not Kubrick. No. It's not. It's not Kubrick. No. It's not Star Wars. We will talk specifically about those effects here in a while, but yeah. quite honestly, the phrase that comes to mind and the, what it looks most like to me is bed knobs and broomsticks. It does. It's the turn the uh -huh. the bedpost and then you get the little sparkle effects mm -hmm. and then everybody disappears in a wave of haze. Like, That's this. People are frozen while the effects are happening. It, to me, it felt very like late 1950s, early 1960s sci-fi, like early Star Trek even. So if you're an audience member who's just walked out of Empire Strikes Back, then you're like, listen, guys, I don't yeah. know if I'm going to go see this one a second time. Yeah, you've watched them in the wrong order. Yeah. <laughs> so we have mentioned... Star Trek a couple of times. We may talk a little bit more about this in a while, the Star Trek connection. Oh, yeah. The biggest connection here to Star Trek is who the director and writer was. On this film, the director-writer was a gentleman named Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas Meyer would go on to do some pretty big stuff not too long after this, including the second Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, best Star Trek. That's right. And uh, eventually Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, right. also a decent Star Trek. Nicholas Meyer was very lucky because he got to do the movies that did not fall under the Star Trek curse. Even for, numbers. For those, right, exactly. For those not familiar, <laughs> there is a uh, an odd-numbered Star Trek curse that yes. seems to hold true. Yes, and actually, the Trek curse, everyone says that it falls apart when Nemesis comes out because Nemesis was an even-numbered film that tanked, but actually, if you count Galaxy Quest as a Star Trek movie, which I do. The curse holds. Odd mm -hmm. numbers are bad, even numbers are good. I'm just saying. If you're counting Galaxy Quest, do you then have to count the documentaries that came out about that time? So no. Trekkies and the rest of it? No. Very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Meyer would also do another film that I am very familiar with having grown up in the Midwest. It was like a thing, but it's a, a movie called The Day After, which if nobody remembers this, it was in the mid 80s. And it was about here's what nuclear war is going to look like. And it was a really terrible, awful, cheesy film. Yeah. But it was made a big deal at the time. And I remember it aired on TV at some point, And I just like I remember walking into bombs going off, apocalypse stuff. And I was a kid, you know, Yeah. we were not allowed to watch it like <laughs> no. officially. We were not allowed to watch no. it. The thing about Meyer, though, on this one was prior to Time After Time, he hadn't directed anything. This was going to be his 
first time directing. Now, he had written some stuff. He'd actually done about four movies as a writer before that, but this was the first one that he was going to try his hand at directing. The writer, writers on this, we mentioned he's one of the screenwriters. There are two others that are credited on it. Um, One of them is Carl Alexander, who I want to say was a a writer-writer, like book writer. And the other one is Steve Hayes. Now, Steve Hayes, strangely enough, I have a roundabout connection to. Tell us more. So Steve Hayes is, for the most part, I mean, he's done a few things, but for the most part, Steve Hayes was a TV writer. He would write series that were typically based on bigger movie properties. So he did the Conan the Adventurer TV series from Conan the Barbarian. Mm -hmm. He did the Tarzan TV series from Tarzan movies. And he wrote for a Baywatch adjacent, I don't know if it came first or after, I'm guessing after, knockoff called Acapulco Heat. Okay? (laughs) All of those shows, Acapulco Heat, Conan the Adventurer, and Tarzan, I worked for the company that made those. So I never worked on any of those series, but those giant posters were on every wall, and it's possible I even met Steve Hayes at one point. So that's my tiny connection. you've been like 12 years old or something? When were you doing this? <laughs> I'm an old person, if I haven't <laughs> mentioned that before. <laughs> you've got a book writer and a TV writer and the director, all credited as writers on this. The screenplay was based on, we mentioned Carl Alexander, who I thought was a book writer. He is. He, he wrote an unpublished novel called The Time Travelers, and that started as a short story between himself and Steve Hayes, I guess, who were working together, and was partially inspired, if so, to get incestuous about it, by a script that Nicholas Meyer had done called The 7% Solution, which got made into a movie in 76. Round and round. Wheels within wheels. That's right. The movie stars, as we've mentioned, Malcolm McDowell. McDowell, best known, I think, probably for most people for Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, but has been in a lot of stuff over time. I always think about him from Star Trek. Correct. (laughs) Right. And the Star Trek thing is going to keep coming back. How can I make this episode about Star Trek? I think we have. (laughs) And I think we'll continue to do so. This was Malcolm McDowell's first American film. And Welcome to America starred in this thing, right? But he starred alongside Mary Steenburgen, who this is the youngest... I have ever seen her in a film. She was a little baby. She was like 27 or something. She was in her late 20s in this Yeah, film. and not that older Mary Steenburgen isn't attractive, but younger Mary Steenburgen is cute as hell. She's And she's so tiny. She's so petite. She is. And the weird thing about it that I had to have pointed out to me is that, okay, in this movie, she is playing a present-day person who is helping a time traveler from the past get back to the past. Right. Later, she would be in Back to the Future 3. That's right. And would play a past person who is helping a time traveler get back to the present. And in both of those movies, she goes with the time traveler to their own time. Mm -hmm. Like at the end, she stays there with them. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. You got to think that's on purpose. It was. If you, There was a, an interview done with her where she says, I think they modeled my character in Back to the Future off of my character in Time After Time so that it would be a nice, neat little wrapped up in a bow. I like that. Yeah, I do too. Really good movie, but we're not covering Back to the Future no. in this season. It's not going to happen. All? At all. Oh. It was so obvious. I couldn't yeah. do it. But the third person in the list on the marquee is an actor named David Warner. David Warner has an interesting pedigree in the movies. Just the movies that he's in, I think, are all good, slightly flawed, but underrated, mostly, movies. And so he'll show up in things like 
Tron, and he's the waxwork guy. HBO way back in the oh, 80s, they played waxwork every two and a half minutes, uh-uh. right? But also, welcome back to Star Trek. Hey! Wasn't he in six or four? Or? Uh, Undiscovered Country, I think, is six, and Meyer directed Undiscovered Country. The producer on this was a guy named Herb Jaffe, who did some okay films, right? He did Fright Night, he did Made to Order with Ali Sheedy. At the time, though, even though these were the movies that he'd done, he had a pretty good reputation in terms of you can count on this guy to make a good movie. Jaffe is a big part of this. So Herb Jaffe gets offered the project after Nicholas Meyer, who was already his friend and already somebody he'd been collaborating with, Mm -hmm. had optioned The Time Travelers, this short story, had optioned it with his own money. So Nicholas Meyer looked at this and went, you know, this would make a great movie. Uh Put up his own money, went to his buddy Jaffe and said, hey, will you come on and produce this? That gets Jaffe onto the project. That does not get a studio onto the project. Right. So what gets a studio onto the project is Jaffe and his reputation going into Warner Brothers and saying, look, this is going to be a good film. Gets Warner Brothers on board to finance the film. They bring on Orion, I think, as a silent partner. And there is a contract put in place that Jaffe negotiates, which includes a non-negotiable condition that Meyer would get to direct, which is in direct opposition to what Warner was wanting to do at the time, which was avoiding first-time directors. But it was because of Jaffe's influence that they said, yeah, okay. Okay. So Meyer believed in Jaffe, got him to produce. Jaffe believed in Meyer, got him the director's seat. That's a good That's buddy friends system. friends helping friends. Meyer understands that he's a first-time director. He knows that there is a lot riding on this and that his future career kind of rides on this and right. that he's not done this before. And so something that he insisted on, um, I was reading, was he wanted five days of rehearsal prior to shooting. That was number one. You know, sometimes that happens, but not always. Sometimes you just show up on the first day and go. Okay, great. Good decision. The second was he hired a sketch artist to create a storyboard, which he ultimately didn't use the storyboard, but that kind of helped him as a visualization tool to say, oh, okay, I can tell this thing visually versus having them to say it out loud or whatever right, it is. Yeah. And so he trained himself to be a director in order not to suck at it too badly. <laughs> In his first go around. Uh Okay, he's figured out how to be a director. He's gotten the director's seat. He says, okay, what's the cast I want to put in this thing? Well, initially, I think Meyer was looking at Derek Jacoby to play the lead. So Jacoby, you'll find in Gladiator and Gosford Park and Dead Again, those types of movies. Or he wanted Tom Conti, who just got done playing Albert Einstein in Oppenheimer. Which which, I haven't seen yet. Which I haven't seen yet, but not unserious names to play this part. He wanted them to play H.G. Wells. And then was looking at Edward Fox, who I know from war movies like A Bridge Too Far and kind of older stuff like Gandhi. And even from the Bond series, I think Never Say Never Again he was in. And he also played Carlos the Jackal in Day of the Jackal. And so he wanted him to play the Jack the Ripper character. Warner was hoping that through the door they could get Richard Dreyfuss as H.G. Wells and Mick Jagger as Jack the Ripper. Good God cocaine. Close Encounters was just coming out. And Jaws was 75. Jaws was 75. So Dreyfuss would have been like a get. If you're trying to get asses in seats, get Dreyfuss. And I'm sure Dreyfuss was like, I'm not doing your movie now because I'm the guy who puts asses in seats. And the premise of your movie is ridiculous ridiculous and I won't do it. I don't know why Jagger said no. What was he doing? What does that guy do? (laughs) Nothing. Here's the thing about Jagger, though. Yeah. Dude's not a bad actor. Did you ever see the movie Free Jack? I have not seen the movie Free Jack. Free Jack was from like early 90s, like 92. Okay. And I don't quite remember everything that it was about. I do remember. Was it because you were doing a lot of cocaine? It was the 90s. (laughs) 
I don't remember exactly what Free Jack was about, but I do remember it had something to do with race cars and whatever. And what I do remember was that he was decent in it. So having him... Was he? Yeah. All right. Needless to say, neither of those people ended up in it. For the Mary Steenburgen role, the studio was hoping to offer it to Sally Field. Sally Field said, nope, not going to do that. (laughs) And uh, Meyer's first choice at the time was his girlfriend, Shelley Hack, who did end up in the movie in a very, very small bit part. I think she's one of the voices on the PA at the museum or something. Like, the museum is closing soon. She's basically that. She, the story goes, didn't want to get the role because her boyfriend was Nicholas Meyer. She wanted to earn it on her own and didn't. (laughs) But it's okay. She went on to do various roles in movies you're going to recognize the name of, right? She was in Annie Hall. She was in The King of Comedy. She was in Troll. It wasn't Troll 2, but she was in the original Troll. The studio said no, I think. And uh, so she was out. She wasn't going to do that. I think Blythe Danner was considered Gene Arthur mm-hmm. was sort of the model that Nicholas Meyer was going after. So Gene Arthur, go back to your black and whites, mm-hmm. and she was in You Can't Take It With You, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and Shane. She's got this kind of, she just got this presence that's like this. And that's how we ended up, I think, with Mary Steenburgen, yeah. is she just kind of fit that Gene Arthur mold well enough. I know we're going through a lot. I don't know how much of this is going to make the edit, but the director and also Malcolm McDowell, both of them could have, because this was historically based, they could have gone back to history and built things around how things really were, but neither one of them did that and decided that they didn't want to rely too heavily on history with their prep. And so, for instance, Malcolm McDowell is playing H.G. Wells. <laughs> I loved this when I read this. And Yeah, tell me. Oh, well, so he went, he was doing some background and got his hands on an old recording of Wells's actual voice. Voice and was horrified to learn that he had this like effeminate, like high pitched. He had a Mary Steen virgin voice. He had a high pitched <laughs> voice, and McDowell was like, "You know, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. Actually, <laughs> which I think is a little misogynist. I think it's a little. There's a little toxic masculinity in there. You know what I mean? Like, hey man, you don't think you could have been romantic and compelling? What's wrong with having a high voice, man? He decided to go for the more like old timey characterization of what you might think of as a man from the late 19th century. Professorial. Professorial. And it worked. But I, I'm kind of sad. I would like to have heard at least like his impression of Wells. I think if he had gone with that impression of Wells with the high voice like this, acting alongside Mary Steenburgen, who's got a voice <laughs> like this, I don't know that he and Steenburgen would have gotten together and got married following this. So this came out in 79. They got married in 80. We'll get into that later, too. I had problems with McDowell. I also thought he was very cute and very good in this movie, Uh but there was one major problem that I had with him that I'll come back to. There's a lot of things about this film that I didn't, but one of the things I did enjoy about this film and I thought was really done well was the shooting of it. I thought so, too. That's because it was shot by Paul Lohman. Lohman, who, in comparison to shooting time after time, he shot Altman's Nashville. He shot Mommy Dearest. So a dude who knows his way around a camera. I mean, he would also shoot Mel Brooks's High Anxiety, which is another one of my favorite movies. But Loman's a good dude and worked on trying to shoot this in a way that didn't require it to be lit much. And so he's using single source lighting and not trying to make it look too stagey, which I think was a good decision because yeah. if it's already kind of hokey and stagey and whatever to begin with. And so trying to at least shoot it somewhat realistic looking, I think helps temper that. I thought it had pretty good natural lighting feel to it. And I really enjoyed some of the earlier scenes that are shot in the 19th century. It felt 
very candlelit, yeah. Victorian. Like, it the, really put me there. The warm glow mm-hmm. kind of a feel to it. Mm-hmm. Edited by Don Camburn, Easy Rider, Romancing the Stone, The Bodyguard, and a film that we just watched with my son recently, Ghostbusters 2. That one scared me so bad when I was Felix's age. He is Vigo! Uh. Production design here was important, and that was done by uh, Edward C. Carfagno, who was actually the Oscar-winning art director for Ben-Hur. A little indie film. Uh Uh-huh. This is a guy with a pedigree. Carfagno would go on, if I'm pronouncing his name right, would really just go on from that point forward after this film or slightly before it to art direct and to production design essentially every film that Clint Eastwood has ever done from that point forward. And that includes doing the production design on The Deadpool, which is another San Francisco-based movie. Not to be confused with Deadpool, which is a different movie. There's a pairing. Can we get Deadpool Deadpool. versus versus Dirty Harry? (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Uh Yeah. You know, there's a time machine in this. And so Nicholas Meyer had instructed Carfagno to design the time machine, which is called the Argo, but that's never said out loud. You know, you see it printed on the time machine. But he wanted it to kind of resemble a Victorian spectacle, so something that you might see in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And so they built this time machine prop that was big. It was 12 feet long, it was 4 feet wide, it was 8 feet high, and it was made at a cost of $70,000 in 1979 money. So this is a big, expensive prop that they put a lot of time and effort into, and ultimately drove Nicholas Meyer mad and how difficult it was to work with. This is giving me shades of Bruce the Shark in Jaws. Spielberg had, they had to build a bunch of them, or yes. at least a couple of them. And, and they never worked. And they never freaking worked, which actually ended up working out for Jaws, because Spielberg was like, you know what, let's uh, not show the shark. Let's just give the impression of the shark. We don't need to see it. We don't need to see it. I think we should have done that with the time machine in this movie. <laughs> let's just Nazi. I'll lose How about to that? the time machine. It'll be way cooler that way. Yeah. Every so often we see it just poke up out of the water and then it goes away. <laughs> <Nah, nah. laughs> well, when the film came out, we mentioned it didn't do well. Uh, you know, it did mm. well enough to cover the marketing budget, but not much more than that. And so Nicholas Meyer said that was really just because Warner Brothers didn't get behind it yeah. because they didn't understand the humor. Tonally, it's kind of all over the place, but they didn't understand the humor. And also, they, as a studio, were concerned about having two English leads. So for H.G. Wells and for Jack the Ripper, who, by the way, what is that? They're English. Yeah, they're (laughs) English, but also so very many movies that have done well are all English. Apparently, the question was posed, could Jack the Ripper be from Boston? No. The Ripper. The Ripper. (laughs) (laughs) They had some good sneak peeks, and ultimately the studio said, okay, fine, we'll we'll stop asking about that, and we got the movie that we got. The music in this movie has Oscar all over it, not for this particular music, but for the guy who composed it, who is a, a gentleman named Miklos Rosa who won three Oscars, and I think all of them or a couple of them for Hitchcock films. So Spellbound. Um, I think he also did Ben-Hur, so was working with the other production designer Mm -hmm. on that film, and Mm -hmm. then um, A Double Life as well. So that is what we know, and that's a lot more than we know about a lot of films we talk about on this show. We finish this off, as always, with my special recognition for somebody in the movie business on this film who doesn't always get a shout out. And today that is going to be the late Dominic and Ruth Santarone. I'm hoping I say their last name right. S-A-N-T-A-R-O-N-E 
who were the caterers on this film. Now, the caterers are people who are rarely, if ever, acknowledged when you're talking about how a movie was made. Yeah. But they are people who are vital to a movie being made. Your actors can't act if they're passed out. Your grips can't grip. Your electric can't electric. The boys are not best. (laughs) (laughs) There is nothing that is happening on a set if someone doesn't have the right breakfast burrito. That's correct. And that's where the the Santaronis came in. They weren't one-off caterers. They were people who fed a lot of different big films. And the ones that stuck out to me were The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and the Bond film Diamonds of Forever and Smokey and the Bandit and even Tora, Tora, Tora. Like lots and lots of food given to lots and lots of people on some big movies. And so we thank them for their contribution. Thank you. I don't know if you're still alive, but... They are the late Dominic and Ruth, and so I'm guessing not. Yeah, cut that. Yeah. But that's it. That's what we know about this film going into it. We're two hours into this thing. Let's (laughs) let's start. Let's actually talk about the movie itself. And sure, let's do that when we talk about our feature presentation. That's right. Our feature presentation is the 1979 time travel film Time After Time. As we have mentioned, this film starts in late 1800s London, 1893, I Which, think to be specific. Jack the Ripper was done ripping by 1891. They could have said it any time. Why did it have to be 1893? Uh, two reasons. One, they mention up front that after a long break, the Ripper has started again. But, but B, if you think historically, why did he stop in 1891? Because he was time traveling. No, because he was time traveling in 1893. He started time traveling in 1893, but maybe he went back to no, 1891 and no. did some more time travel. No, you don't know. That's not what happened. That's historically accurate. <laughs> <laughs> we get foggy London in 1893. We start kind of out in the middle of Whitechapel, I'm assuming, as a drunk lady, a woman of the night named Jenny, played by Karen Collison, is not forced out of the pub, but escorted out of the pub. She's had a few too many. Yeah, she's had enough. She's cut off. She's giggling and tripping her way down the street. And we are following her with the camera in the POV of an unseen man. And because we're a man seeing a drunk lady on the street, we know that nothing good is going to happen next. No, that never ends well. (laughs) We know we're a guy because in front of the camera comes this white gloved hand. So we're not a man. We're a fancy man who has white gloves on. In the white gloved hand, there is a gold coin. He offers the gold coin to Jenny. Jenny being a lady who likes money, says, I'll take your money if you'd like to follow me to my place that is nearby. Right. And our man suggests that might be that a bit alley too far. Over there. How about the alley? <laughs> and she's like, oh, <laughs> okay. Really, you're in a hurry, sir. <laughs> but she's down for the gold. She's, she's excited about it. So off to the alley they go. She's like that drunken co-ed at this point where like nothing is happening. She's just in a haze of intoxicated pleasure. So it's her by herself up against the wall as the camera moves in with her eyes closed and she's just like feeling it. She's like, oh my gosh, yes. But like he's not doing anything. 
The only thing he is doing is opening a pocket watch. We're going to see his pocket watch a lot. He opens a pocket watch. When he opens it, inside we see there's a picture of a woman, and it's a musical pocket watch. It plays a little tune. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, you brought your own music. <laughs> <laughs> The 1893 equivalent. The 1893 equivalent. Wow, 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 wow. As they are getting closer to the act, she requests his name. Hey, dude, what's your name? He tells her that his name is John. John, Mm -hmm. but my friends call me Jack. That's not the thing you want to hear. No. When you're in the alley with the dude in the 1800s, because what immediately follows that is... He slashes her belly open. Correct. Which is not... Look, did Jack the Ripper tell people his name is Jack? I'm pretty sure Jack the Ripper is just the name that was given to him by the media because nobody knew who the hell he was. It's D.B. Cooper. Also time traveling. <laughs> uh, Jack is like just was a really common name, right? It was like John Doe, Jack the Ripper... And the other thing was that wasn't his M.O. He does this later in the movie, but he would slit their throats first and then like pull out their entrails and stuff after they were already mostly dead. <laughs> Did he have a musical pocket watch? That part actually is historically accurate. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Who was the how, picture of the lady? In the- how dare we get away from history in a movie about time travel? <laughs> if you're going to ask me to suspend my disbelief, True. you have to have the other facts in place so that I buy into your premise and then can go, oh, but then this one, that's, that makes sense, though. Everything else makes sense. Well, he ripped. That part he we did, did rip. right. He, he did rip he, her right open. He ripped. He and take, she dies very beautifully. She does. Slides down the wall. Uh-huh. <gasps> and then she's just conveniently dead instead of, oh, God, call 911. <laughs> the spurting entrails. <laughs> God's coming now. Yeah. None of that. He grabs his watch. He walks away. Strolls away. Strolls away. Strolls away past a Bobby who doesn't pay much attention to the dude who just walked out of the alley. But nearly immediately after having seen him go by, the Bobby notices that there are some bloody footprints. There's a trail of blood leading out of the alley. And he finds, of course, our Jenny dead and ripped in the alley. Too late. No, Jack's gone. The other thing that's happening right about this same time just down the street is that there is a dinner party. And the dinner party is happening at the house of science fiction writer and futurist H.G. Wells, played by Malcolm McDowell. If we didn't know H.G. Wells before this, we get to find out a bit about what he is all about. He's a publisher at this point, writing for the paper and writing stories about free love and utopias and socialism. He's that guy. He was that guy, and uh, I was delighted that they made him that guy in the movie and that all of his compatriots think he's ridiculous and that he's holding his ground and he's like, no, man, socialism. It's a movie about H.G. Wells chasing Jack the Ripper through time and he's a free love socialist. Cocaine. Cocaine. His guest at this party is Dr. John Leslie Stevenson, played by David Warner, who has shown up a little late but has arrived just in time to hear Wells's big announcement. The big announcement is that Wells is going to be traveling. Oh, are you leaving London? Kinda. No? Yeah, sorta. <laughs> uh, I'm not really going to be traveling out of London so much as I am going to be traveling through time in a time machine that I have built. Ta-da! None of this is ever explained. H.G. Wells was not a scientist per se. He did graduate. His alma mater was the Royal College of Science, but he was scientist. not. He wasn't. He wasn't a like a basement 
scientists. So then there's no explanation given in the film like noted scientist H.G. Wells builds a fabulous machine. No, none of that. He's a publisher. He's a rich thinker guy. Everyone needs a hobby. This is his this model is his, trains. This right? is his model trains. Yeah. So he's built a time machine. Oh, you built a time machine. Ha ha ha. Wells. Oh, no, no. Let me show you. Let's go downstairs to my laboratory. <laughs> Takes them downstairs to essentially the, it looks like the basement from Psycho. It's that basement. But downstairs in the middle of this basement is a giant egg or goldfish shaped machine covered in glitter. And colorful lights. And lights. It's very gay, to be honest. It's incredibly gay. It's the machine that a socialist would build. It looks like when I was a kid and you would go to the Kmart and they had the little thing outside that you could put a quarter in and go up and down and ride it. It's that. It looks like one of those little rocket ships. And it has the name Argo on the front of it. That's the name of the ship. We're never going to mention that again. It doesn't matter. What does matter is when he's explaining how it's powered and how it works. So being the commie socialist that he is, he has built something that runs on solar power. solar powered. I had no idea that solar power was so efficient. It's solar powered, but he's keeping it in In a basement. basement. So where is it charging? (laughs) And it runs, he says, at two years per minute in either direction. So you can go forward or backward in time. And the nerd in me loved that specificity. We can argue in real physics whether the uh, backwards in time is possible the forwards is a little more possible but that's fine he's built into it a failsafe an automatic return for emergencies so if you just happen to go somewhere in time and then you Get fall out conscious or something right then you have this sort of special override thing that'll kick you back to the present after a certain amount of time and it's a key that you have to insert the most important part he tells us is what he calls the vaporizing equalizer yes which love that it is this little piece of glittering metal that sticks into the side of the machine and is never really explained. It's the flux capacitor. It's, I was literally about to say it's the flux capacitor of this machine. Yeah, and he basically says if you don't have this in the machine, you will effectively sort of disintegrate, disentangle from time, and you will just be launched into infinity forever. You need this thing to stay grounded and part of the machine. Here is a moment of clunky filmmaking, but they've gone from the dining room where they were all hanging out. Everybody's gone downstairs. We've seen the time machine. Okay, isn't that great? And then we've gone back up. And we're we're sitting in the dining room again. Couldn't have done all that in one place. But Wells and Stevenson are playing chess. This just seems to be something that they do a lot. And it seems like Wells loses all the time. And the reason Wells loses all the time, Stevenson tells him, is because I understand how you think. One day, maybe you'll understand how I think, and then you'll beat me. But until then, you will not. And that establishes their relationship. Wells, in playing all of this chess, makes his decision and says, you know what? I'm going to go to the future. Why? Because I believe in utopias. And by whatever point I go to in the future, surely. Three generations from now. Three generations. Surely the world is a beautiful place. Exactly. And I want to see it. And Stevenson. And everybody laughs at him. Everybody laughs at him. (laughs) Stevenson, most of all. Stevenson says, look, man never changes. They hunt and are hunted. That's how he puts it. But Wells won't believe that. You're wrong. I'm going to go. I just haven't gotten up the nerve to go yet, but I will go and I'll, I'll prove it to you. The future is perfect. Yep. 
it is at that moment that this conversation and this discussion about time travel and where he's going to go gets interrupted. Well, the housekeeper comes in and says, uh, Sir Scotland Yard's at the door. <laughs> Never so, good. He's like, I don't know. Uh, no, no. Even Hide in, the drugs! Even in 1893, nobody's happy when the cops show up for no freaking reason. And the coppers make the proclamation, which we laughed at earlier, that the Ripper, after a vacation, is, is, back. is back. He finished in 91. We had a little break, everybody. And now he's back in 1893. And something just happened down the road. Can we search your house? Well, of course you can search my house. And very quickly, in the downstairs closet, I think, a Bobby finds a leather bag. The bag belongs to, dun, 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 Stevenson. Because Stevenson, I don't know if you mentioned this, he's a doctor. He is chief so, of surgery. Right, so this is his doctor's bag. He's at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, he's chief of surgery. This is his doctor's bag, got his name on it to prove it. Yep. And inside that bag, they find a bloody white glove. The clue. It's all you need in 1893. Do the cops ever mention seeing the time machine? Like, they search the whole house. <laughs> well, I guess there's a reason why they don't. There is a reason why they, reason why they don't. Right, right, right. They do search the whole house, and they don't find him. And that is interesting that they say that they don't see yeah, the time that, machine. As I was watching the movie, I remember this now. As I was watching the movie, they come up, they're like, we're going to go find him. So they leave, and I'm watching the movie like, they don't mention this weird thing they the, found the in the basement. The shiny goldfish downside. You didn't see that? No? Okay. They didn't find him. And we don't understand really why they don't mention the time machine until slightly later. And this is when the housekeeper comes back to Wells. And this is a housekeeper, Mrs. Turner, played by Antonio Katsaros, who is wondering out loud where Dr. Stevenson went. Because everybody else was present and accounted for yeah. after the cops were done. But apparently Stevenson was not. We have like a clue moment here where it suddenly is like an ensemble thing. But somebody's missing from the party. Yeah, Who we, could it be? we were all by the front door at the same time. <laughs> right. Except him. Where Where's did he Colonel go? Mustard? This sparks a thought in Wells' head. And he's like, oh, of course, runs downstairs to his lab, turns on his electric light and looks. But the big shiny goldfish is gone. God. Stevenson's probably Jack the Ripper. And Stevenson now has become the first person in history to time travel. <laughs> in a means to get away from the cops. Which, you know what? Good for him. A-cab. Absconding in the goldfish. <laughs> if you're going to do cops. it, do it. But here's the thing. The override key is in Wells's pocket right. still, which means that the time machine is going to come back because it doesn't have the haste. It's on an auto thing, right. auto timer, basically. It doesn't have the haste sit still and don't go anywhere key in it. It's going to come back. And so all he has to do is sit and wait. And he doesn't have to wait long. Because almost immediately, here goes the entire room shaking and quaking, and here comes the bed knobs and broomsticks, sparkly effects that are everywhere all over the room. Remember when you were a kid, maybe, and there were those kaleidoscope things yes. that you could look through and you turn them and all the colors and everything? Imagine if you had taken one of those, looked through it, broken it open, and then inhaled all of the that was inside of it, that's what this looks like. And there's one key thing, a graphical feature throughout the movie that's it's so distracting. Whenever they show a shot of the dashboard of mm -hmm. the inside of the time machine, mm -hmm. you can see all the, the little buttons and all the dates and stuff, but they must have gotten one of the dates wrong and then tried to fix it in post. And you just see this little very shaky, badly animated 1979 hovering over where it's supposed to be the entire time. It's, come on, guys. I, I know you could do better than it's that. It's one step 
up from gaff tape with something <laughs> written on it. Really took me out of it, yeah. <laughs> the ship comes back, it rematerializes inside. There is no Stevenson inside anymore, right. so wherever he went, he's gotten out. But we know where he went because the destination dial on the inside of this thing reads November 5th, 1979. Okay, we know where Wells needs to go in order to retrieve Stevenson. He is a little distraught that, A, this has happened because, oh my, what have I done to Utopia? (laughs) I've sent a murdering murderer there. (laughs) But it's my responsibility. I've got to go to the future to get him back. But I know, good on him, realizing that to go to the future, he's going to need a bit of cash. He's so pragmatic about it in this moment. Like, so much has happened in the last few minutes. His time machine has taken Jack the Ripper to the future. Okay, I'm going to need cash. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to need cash and a flask. But not a change of clothes. I'm not going to need a change of clothes. (laughs) I will need brandy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Like a true gentleman. It's like going to Vegas. What do you need? You need cash Money and booze. Clothing is optional. That's right. <laughs> and his housekeeper doesn't question it. He's like, I'll pay you back. Give me all your jewelry. Takes all the money he can gather, hops into the time machine, sets the date with the gaffer tape to whatever the date is that he needs to go, and pushes start. Okay. So cocaine. (laughs) So now we're going on a little trip. Once we push the start button, you know, we could have quantum leaped it and leapt him to the future and you just sort of appear there. We could have done some version of the spinning hands on a clock to show where we were going and get there. And we get that a little bit with the dashboard. Instead, what was chosen to be done was to elongate a sequence and watch the shiny goldfish fly through time. And basically fall apart and overheat as it's doing it. Screws are coming unscrewed. It's spinning mm-hmm. slowly in a circle mm-hmm. for some reason. Yeah, yeah. It's leaving trails behind it of its... How do you describe this? Like, it's 70 sci-fi yeah, effects. It's, it, I'm thinking about, like, Disney's The Black Hole. It's just that crazy, psychedelic, super animated, every special effect they could could throw the camera on their budget. It's quite a sequence. I can't talk enough about it. I have to stop talking about it to move on, but yeah. I don't want to yeah. because it's, it's that unusual. It's quite something. All of a sudden, all this stops, and Wells, inside his little time machine, is sitting looking out the window in a room that is not his basement anymore. And there is a little boy standing outside of the window, basically pointing and going, yeah, look, mom, look what this is. Which, if you pay close attention, that is the screen debut of Corey Feldman. Oh, my God. I did not catch that. First time on film. I had to go back and watch it a second time. It's absolutely him. Everybody in the date now that H.G. Wells is in is standing inside an H.G. Wells museum. Which, at first, you would think is a reasonable thing. Oh, they've transformed his house into a museum. It's a historical site. Yes, yes. But no. He doesn't know yet exactly where he is, but he steps out the time machine. He's wandering around seeing pictures of himself as an old person. All the stuff is about the books that he's written. Everything that we, the viewers, know about the H.G. Wells who lived is in this museum, which tells us 
he goes back in time and exists the rest of his life as H.G. Wells. So we know he's not going to die in this movie because by the laws of continuity, none of those things can be there if he didn't go back and do them. Unless you believe in multiple timelines. I do, but if it were a multiple timeline, then it's a whole other thing. <laughs> it's we, a whole other we, thing. We, that breaks it a different way. <laughs> he's broken his glasses in the course yes, of going on I this trip. I love this little moment. And his desk, his old desk, is sitting there as an exhibit and he goes to the drawer where he knows his glasses will be and finds a fresh pair and puts them on. I'll be honest, that is the point at which I sort of went from chuckling at this bad movie to suddenly being completely on board with this movie. That's the moment. That was the moment. It was such a nice little detail. And Malcolm McDowell is so nonchalant about it. He's very nonchalant about a lot of the events of this movie. But he just is sort of saunters like, just look around and nobody's looking. I just, oh, my glasses are in there. And he just swaps them out, puts them on. Like, it was so smooth. He walks his way out of this exhibit to find, as you hinted at earlier, he ain't in London anymore. He is now instead in 1979, San Francisco. How could this have happened? How could this have happened? And that is my question. How could this have happened? Because I don't know that I ever fully understand he why that happened. He had to point the time machine west to go forward. So he didn't just go forward in time. He went eight time zones physically into San Francisco. Interesting. That's the only freaking reason why they would have pointed out at the very beginning you got to go east to go to the past, west to go to the future. He physically went west through space and time. So then the reason it comes back to where you started is because it has to point itself east to come back that direction. Okay. See, I missed that entirely the first time around. Yeah. It made zero sense to me why he was showing up. So that makes... It doesn't make a ton of no, sense. No, but it makes more sense than what I had. Yeah. What did you have? I, nothing. nothing. I had, oh, because that's the present location of the time machine, then somehow it had to show up where it was presently, right. which makes a lot less sense. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so outside of the museum, he's able to see, oh, look, it's an H.G. Wells exhibition inside a museum. That museum is in America. He doesn't quite know where in America yet, but he knows it's America because there's a big American flag and Hare Krishnas and things like floating yeah, yeah, around yeah. him as yeah. he's coming out of the Which the he also doesn't question. One must assume when he first sees the Hare Krishnas, he assumes it's some part of the utopia. That right. Oh, look at all these free love robe-wearing folks. But the further he walks into town, the more it becomes apparent that this utopian idea of what the future is going to be is not necessarily holding true, but it's also proving that he is in the future because yes. the things he's seeing are, hey, look, a jet plane in the sky. Hey, look, cars. There is this woman in really tight clothes. Very transparent skirt. Walking down the street. And there's the, the little sex paper vending yeah. machines. Yeah. And he, I don't know whose choice this was, if it was an acting choice, a writing choice, whatever, but I appreciate that Malcolm McDowell just sort of, he doesn't really stop and gawk at anything. He takes it in as an empiricist might, which he's just letting it wash over him. There is a moment where he's so preoccupied with everything that he doesn't see a stop sign. He steps off the curb and nearly gets hit by a car. Yeah. But otherwise, he's he's not like, my God, look at that aircraft. He's just, okay, yeah, well, because of course there would be airplanes and cars and stuff because it's Is, the Isn't it's he the writing it down? He's making notes. He wanders around town trying to ask people where he is. What city is this? What year is this? Nobody seems to want to answer him. And so he resorts to going back and looking at a newspaper and finding, oh, look, I'm in 
1979, mm-hmm. but I'm in San Francisco. Hey, that's weird. The next thing that will come into play besides information for him, which makes, of course, a lot of sense, is money, right? He needs money in order to do anything here. And so he has prepared for this. He goes to a bank, presents his money, which is old, old money, and the bank tells him so. He's like, look, I can give you 30 bucks 30 bucks for this, but you're going to get a lot more if you went to like a rare coins dealer or something like that. Because if you sell this instead of try to exchange it, the money as a collectible has more value than as currency. Which doesn't help him in terms of getting the money that he needs, but it does put in his head this realization that I don't just need money. Everybody needs money. And that includes Stevenson. And if Stevenson needs money, then this is a way for me to try to find him in this whole big city of San Francisco. It's, it's a very practical way of thinking. So what does he do to find him? He goes on a hunt. He goes from bank to bank to bank to bank to bank to bank all over San Francisco, which is full of banks. Yes. From all over the world and stops by and sees if he can see Stevenson, which he doesn't. Right. Doing that can cause one to be very hungry. Yes. And so he decides to go for lunch and... Finds his way to the place and where, what of else course, is on every go. street corner already in 1979? McDonald's. McDonald's. This film's going to go through a few different tone changes. We've started with Mysterious. And, and a little buttoned up, too. A little buttoned up. And we're going to go through very dramatic and even violent at points and whatever. This is one of those moments of just pure comedy where he steps into a McDonald's, has no idea, A, what it is, B, what they serve, and C, how to acquire what they serve. But again, he but he, as an observer... He gets in line, sees what the guy in front of him orders, just orders that with the same accent. Even. In the same voice. Yes. That was the thing yeah, that I he loved. Does, he does a perfect impression of this guy. It was a Big Mac and fries. And a tea. And a tea. He slips back that into the English with the tea. for that, which I love. Such a nice little touch. And he does and figures out that the... Uh, the fries are pomfrites. frites. Pomfrites frites are, are chips. Frites, yeah. This is another moment of sort of <clears throat> plastering over what was there before. Because if you watch in the movie, I think he ends up saying... Palm frites or fries. And he says, he actually, you see his mouth say chips. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. Oh, I didn't because see that. Because no one would know what he's talking about in 79. <laughs> yes. If he says chips. Yes, yes, yes. This gives us our first really big fish out of water moment. We're going to get a few of those. But this is the first one, and it's a funny one. He goes back immediately after this to trying to get money. Yep. And instead of relying on the cash now, is relying on the jewels. And goes to a jeweler, played by Ray Reinhardt. And hands over, here's the things that I have to trade. What can you give me for them? The jeweler is looking at them, is actually pretty impressed and says, look, I haven't seen jewels like this since before World War II. And Wells is like, World War II? And as a piece of this character, the jeweler, Wells notices, has a number tattooed on the inside of his wrist, which, of course, is a a concentration camp identification number. Never said out loud, but that's something that's referential to that, which I get it. But it's an odd thing to me to put at that moment. Wells's character, it doesn't help him get a sense of time or place for why that would be there. And based on the expressions on his face, I can't help but think maybe the character is wondering, like, does everybody have one of those? He says, I need ID. Is this ID? What is this? Well, Wells can't ultimately trade the jewels, even though the jeweler's willing to give him a lot of money for them. Well, the jeweler, will he's like, look, if you don't have ID, there's another way I could do you through the system, but it's going to take a week before I can give you a check that way. And Wells is like, I don't have a week. He gets out of there. So he's wandering. He's got no money. He's got no place to stay. He's got no idea where Stevenson is. And he's in a city that he doesn't understand. 
So he's looking for some way to alleviate some of this and ends up in a cathedral basically to spend the night, right? It's Monday, Monday. He's yeah. stopped into a church and uh, <laughs> the preacher lights the call. Right. And sitting in the cathedral is talking to God. I don't believe in you, but if you're real, please let me stay the night. And 30 seconds later, the priest comes over and says, you got to get out of here. We're closing. And he ends up on a park bench. <laughs> And so now he really knows he is not in a utopia and God is still dead. He is off, though, the next morning because he still needs money. We don't want to do this again. Still looking very put together, by the way. He looks put together the whole movie. For a man who slept on a park bench that in the rain. That suit has got to smell. They don't make them like they used to. That's true. Yeah. He goes to a pawn shop. So we've downgraded from the bank to the jeweler and now we're in the pawn shop. And he ends up selling his jewels for a whole lot less than they're worth, but just to get some sort of cash to get by on. In modern money, he gets about $1,600. For the jewels? For the jewels. Not bad. It'll get you by for a few days. It is San Francisco. It's a bit expensive. So we'll see how many McDonald's that gets you. Yeah. He does manage to get a little money. And so, okay, that lessens the pressure for a minute. So he's back on the bank hunt. Bank after bank after bank. The Bank of Hong Kong and the Bank of Macau and the Bank of this and that and whatever. None of them pan out until he steps around the right corner and dead in front of him as you hear the Rule Britannia. Yep. And sees the chartered Bank of London. And of course, this is the one maybe that Jack the Ripper has gone to. Best chance we've got. He goes inside. He asks for the officer that's in charge of foreign currency. He knows that at least to do. He ends up getting uh, shuttled over to a woman named Amy, played by Mary Steenburgen, who he mistakes for maybe the secretary of the man in charge. When will he be arriving to help that's me? That's right. Yes. When when can I see the money manager or whatever? And she's like, you're looking at him. Uh-huh. And he's immediately flustered. And she's just kind of watching him go through it and maybe even decides to torture him about it because he's wrong, but he cute. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what's important. <laughs> So she busts his balls for a minute. Yeah. And he has a little slip in there that she doesn't realize is a slip that she takes and runs with. He remembers, oh, women's lib. I was in favor of that. And he uses the past Words tense. in favor of that? Yeah. What changed your mind? Yeah. And then she doesn't even really give him a chance to answer. She sits down and says, how can I help you, Yeah. Sir? What, are, what are we doing here? <laughs> so he lays out his story, his version of a story that he thinks she'll believe. I was traveling with another Englishman and I can't find him anymore. And I'm hoping maybe that he stopped in here. Did anyone like me stop in here maybe to change some money? And immediately she goes, oh, yeah, that dude. He was here yesterday. Giant money belt, wanted to trade out some money with me. And uh, I did that. And I also recommended him to a hotel down the way. It's the Hyatt. You know where the Hyatt is? The Hyatt Regency. That's where he is right now. So Wells has a location potentially, to go find Jack the Ripper. He's got a bit of money in his pocket. As he is leaving to go do those things, though, she decides, because he cute, she decides to take her shot. Well, Uh, what she says is, I told him to go to the Hyatt Regency. She writes it down on a card. And as she hands it to him, she said, look, this is the name of the place. If you get lost, if you need anything, I've also written my number down here. I've taped my room key to it, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Just in case you get and lost. And he's like, I don't know. I just have, he has no idea what this number is or what he's supposed to do with it. But he seems to pick up on the fact that. He does. He that, says it might be nice yeah. if you showed me around town. We'll see. If you want to give get, me a tour. I got to go capture this ripper murderer guy. I don't know if I this murderer, but uh, <laughs> you cute too. And oh, by the way, my name is Herbert, which is what the H. That is his name. And H.G. Wells stands yes. for. Yes. 
So he bounces and immediately also her co-worker is like, girl, what are you doing? And uh, Amy says, what? He cute. <laughs> what do you I'm want a, me to do? I'm a hot-blooded American woman. What, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? <laughs> we'll come back to her because in front of the bank, he sees someone else flag a cab. And so he understands how to flag a taxi, waves his hand. Here comes taxi, jumps in the car, tells the taxi. After an adorable little moment where he figures out how to open the door. Right. And tells the taxi, I need to go to the Hyatt. And before he can get Hyatt out of his mouth. I need to get to the Hyatt as fast as you can, which is a mistake. <laughs> it's, it's a mistake. <laughs> because if you've ever watched a 70s chase film, like Bullet or something like that, this is that in a taxi. It's in San Francisco. In San Francisco. It's flying down the hills and screeching around corners and everything and gets him from wherever he is at this bank to the Hyatt in just a couple of seconds. <laughs> It's shorter than the time travel sequence we watched yes, before. Yes. Okay, he's at the Hyatt. Steps into the Hyatt, which to him feels very futuristic. There's glass elevators. There are escalators. As long as he can see what other people are doing, he will simply follow suit. While he is figuring out the hotel downstairs, upstairs, we see a money belt and go, oh, I know whose this is. Dun, dun, dun. And we find out pretty soon we're right because the belt is picked up and it's by Stevenson. And here he has gotten a room at the Hyatt. He's also had time to get a change of clothes. Yes. He's got 1970s clothes. He's shaved off his big 1893 beard. He's looking very much the picture of a 1979 man. Can we talk about his 1979 clothes? Please do. I don't remember if it's this scene or a later scene. It might be a later scene. But he sports the flyest denim jumpsuit. Yes. I feel like his clothes get cooler as he goes yeah. on. It's not he's that like he's... He's like in a disco club at one point. Yes. He looks it's so good. It's not that he's gone and bought 1979 clothes. It's that he's gone and bought the 1979 clothes. He right. gets like super great sunglasses. Like he and he's got his hair is exactly the right length. Because in 1893, men were wearing their hair long. Yeah. The only thing he had to do was like lose the beard, really. And so he looks like he's just walked out of 1979. Yeah. And he's a good looking, he's a tall, broad shouldered man, knows what he's about. He fits in perfectly. This is where he's supposed to be. It's where he's supposed to be, but it's not really where Wells is supposed to be. Right. And where Wells is currently is somehow downstairs in maneuvering all of this at the hotel. He's figured out what room Stevenson is in. And there's a knock at the door. It's your breakfast, sir, I think is what it and is. In an American accent. Uh, yeah. Yes, it's your breakfast, sir. It's the McDonald's guy accent. And it's perfect. And it's perfect. Which, again, when has Wells had a moment to see room service? Like, he must have seconds before seen someone in room service say, yeah. knock, 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 it's your breakfast. That's the only way he would know that there is such a thing as room service and this is how they present it. It's in his notebook. He just figured it out. We never see him do that, but we must assume. Stevenson, I didn't order breakfast, opens the door and finds Wells standing right there in front of him hey. to his surprise. How in the hell did you find me across time and space in San Francisco? Yeah. But he did. Wells tells him, I am here to bring you back. You must go back to London to face the consequences for your action as a gentleman. He's brought 1890s to 1979 in terms of the sense of honor the and the sense code. of duty and the gentleman's code. He says, we don't belong here. You need to come back. And Stevenson's like, oh, uh, you don't belong here. Sir, look at me. I absolutely belong <laughs> have, have here. I'm a violent man denim? in a violent time. Like, And he sits him down on the end of the bed and says, look at this. Turns on the TV. The technology of the TV is not the point. 
Stevenson starts changing the channels, and on every channel is violence. Mm -hmm. There's war, there's accidents, there's fires. Very familiar to anybody in 2023. And he turns to Wells and says, this is not your utopia. Yeah. You haven't gone forward. You've gone backward. Yeah. And I understand this landscape. Did you know that anyone here can walk into a store and buy a rifle? Yes. That's one thing he tells him. Yes. And at that point, Wells, who in real life was a pacifist, doesn't even want to hear about it. He cuts him off there and he's like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Don't tell me, but you have to come with me. And slaps him. We haven't seen Wells be anything but meek until this point. And this is Wells just cannot deal with it and ends up slapping Stevenson. And Stevenson and uses it against him and says, look, the violence is catching, isn't yeah. it? Stevenson, while Wells is shook up, walks to the door, closes it and says, you know, finding me was fortuitous because if you hadn't found me, I'd have had to have found you. Why? Because you can't go beyond here. I've got to go do my thing and I can't exist while you exist. And thus the attack. I think Stevenson jumps on him. Stevenson jumps on him. There's a brief scuffle. And at that moment, housekeeping. It's right before housekeeping arrives that Stevenson says, I need the key. Give me the key so that I can. That's right. And Wells refuses to give him the key. And And I think that's when Stevenson jumps on him. And then housekeeping. Mm -hmm. And that moment then allows Stevenson to run out and get away and head out into San Francisco to go do dastardly things. Wells, being Wells, gets himself together and has to go continue to chase this guy down. And so there's a chase sequence that ensues. And it starts in the glass elevators as they're racing each other down in the hotel. And then they're on the escalators racing each other down. It would be comic and it should be comic in this type of a film. But this is another one of those tonal things to where it really isn't. I mean, it is and it isn't, but it's more a chase sequence than it is a comedy sequence. I thought it was a really interesting sort of compelling sequence because in this moment, yes, there is the comic context of this is the first time these men have been in a Hyatt. They don't know the layout of this place. But as they're trying to figure out how to get to one another or get away, they're both very self-prepossessing men. So you've got to figure in the moment they're doing the calculus of like, okay, how is this place laid out. How can I get away? Something, just the way that the actors carry it. I don't know. I was sold on it. I felt the tension of that. Yeah, absolutely. And they're they're on bridges yeah. across from one another, like over the same road and, the, you know, move a little left, move mm-hmm. a little right mm-hmm. and, and kind of mirroring each other. The thing I loved the entire time about this is that Stevenson has had the forethought to put on his sunglasses. <laughs> Those like dope ass shades, he manages to put those on and knows he looks good because he's going to strut around in him and, and do a, a chase in him. But they did have sunglasses in the 19th century. They did, but he didn't have them on in the room during the fight. Right. He thought, he had I'm going them. on a chase. I'm going to put my sunnies on. <laughs> the chase, such as it is, runs kind of all over bits of San Francisco, but ends when Stevenson takes a wrong step into an intersection and whereas Wells was almost hit by a car earlier Stevenson is hit by a car yes. when he steps into the road boom hits him he hits the ground we don't see Stevenson sit up what we see is Wells pushes himself through the crowd looks down at something and seems to get this expression of relief like okay he's okay smash cut to the hospital yeah where Wells is arriving expecting to be able to find Stevenson and there's no HIPAA yet so any guy can just walk in off the street and say, hey, this is the man that I'm looking for. And they'll immediately try to find him for you. <laughs> and this nice nurse, this nice nurse takes a look. He's dismissed.
dismissed by one, but there's this other nice nurse who takes a look and says, oh yeah, the guy that was hit by a car, he died. Sorry, I gotta go. And Wells is like, no, but how can he be dead? I saw him sit up. So that's the only moment where uh-huh. we know that Wells saw something that was fine, and the nurse says, he died of internal injuries. It happens all the time. I'm really sorry. I gotta go. And so Wells, being the observer that he is, says, well, then I want to see the body, and is told, I can't show you the body. Are you a family family? member? No, he doesn't have any family. Sorry, dude. Can't show you the body. Look, I could have taken you to a live patient, but I can't just show you a body. That's crazy. (laughs) And that is where Wells is left. He's gone through all of this of being told that Jack the Ripper is working again, seeing that he's stolen his time machine and gone through time, having chased him through time, chased him across San Francisco only to get to a dead end where he has no idea where Stevenson is anymore. Which, on the one hand, now if he thinks that Stevenson's actually dead, then, like, mission accomplished. Jack the Ripper's been stopped. If this lady's telling him he's dead of internal injuries, then chase over. Is Jack the Ripper dead? We'll find out when we get back. Hey, subgenre listeners, this is Josh Dassel, host of the show you're listening to and founder of Kabunki, the company behind it all. If you listen to many podcasts, I do, then you know at this point or somewhere around here, you expect to hear a commercial or two, you know, ads. This is the time when we hear companies who support a podcast speak directly to their audience. So why aren't you hearing one now? Because this space is still available. Have a business, organization, product, or cause you need to promote? Ask Kabunki how to get your ads in front of our global audience of listeners today. The audience knows about movies. They know about pop culture. And soon, they could know about you too. Support this podcast and advertise on Subgenre or other popular shows brought to you by Kabunki. Ask us more on the show website, subgenrepodcast.com or at kabunki.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. You're listening to Subgenre. We are here in studio with Charlotte Moore Lambert talking about the 1979 film Time After Time. We have our tea. It's very good. Good Earth, sponsor this podcast. Please sponsor. Anybody, sponsor my podcast. Yeah. We will get back to this nut job of a film here in a moment. But as always, we'll take a little side detour, a little side quest. and I love a side quest. Do some geek out. (laughs) Awesome. In the geek out, we take a little fan level discussion typically of a topic. And usually I've got a single topic to talk about and we kind of run ourselves through that and have some fun with it. Today, I'm just going to leave the floor wide open. I love a free form. It's a free form and say, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about H.G. Wells? Let's talk about H.G. Wells. You don't know anything about? I know very little, honestly. How did that happen? Well, I went to a public school. (laughs) There's a lot of things I can blame on that, and that would be one of them. Right, but you also went to film school, and so many of his stories have been translated into film. The Invisible Man. Well, true. He wrote? True, true, true. Um, That doesn't mean I've read the books. Okay. I am familiar with The Invisible Man. I am familiar with War of the Worlds. Island of Dr. Moreau. I am very familiar with Island of Dr. Moreau. If you would have asked me to sit and name H.G. Wells stories, I don't know that I would have come up with all of those, but I'm familiar with all of them. Okay. But I am not familiar with them because I've read the books. I think that's probably the case 
for most people. Yeah. So I don't think we need to talk about the biography of H.G. Wells. It is interesting to me that he's considered like the father of science fiction and has hugely influenced modern film. And he, you know, was one of those writers who predicted a lot of things, came up with a lot of technology and a lot of terms and his stories that we just sort of like take for granted in sci-fi now. And so it's one of those things where people know who he is without knowing who he is. You know, I feel like if anybody is going to track down Jack the Ripper, it's going to be our guy. That's true. He deserves it. Has there been a good Wells movie made? Because I'm thinking about, you know, the War of the Worlds movies that Mm -hmm. have been made. Mm -hmm. Not great. The older ones a little better than the newer ones. But there's a War of the Worlds TV series that's come out within the last few years. I think it's like a BBC. It's a British. What's one of those international things that doesn't suck? Okay. But it's a major, major, it's very just like loose. It's more like an inspired by. It's called The War of the Worlds. It's about aliens coming to the Earth and wreaking havoc, but they're not from Mars. They look humanoid. It's a totally different thing, but the acting and the production values are good, but it's not H.G. Wells' story. Can recommend it. I know there was a Time Machine movie made in the 60s based yeah, off the novel, which one. I have not seen. I haven't seen that one, and the one from the early aughts was famously terrible, though it had some interesting things in it. This is a nice little encapsulation of all of the things that he sort of envisioned A futurist and visionary, Wells foresaw the advent of aircraft, tanks, space travel, nuclear weapons, satellite television, and something resembling the World Wide Web. And you got to remember when he's writing about this stuff, that's a very Da Vinci thing of him. Like, if you go and read an H.G. Wells story, they're very readable. I think the way that H.G. Wells is portrayed in Time After Time is a pretty faithful adaptation of the way that Wells tonally tells science fiction stories in a very straightforward, almost journalistic manner. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, but in a way that is digestible to the common person. So part of what brings you into an H.G. Wells story is he presents unreal things happening in a very realistic manner, as opposed to when you watch or read like pulpy science fiction from the turn of the 20th century and through the golden age of science fiction, it's very like, and then there were tentacle monsters, and it was, oh my lord, and there was a bikini-clad woman, and the the age of nuclear whatever. And Wells was not that way at all, and I think that's part of what made his work so compelling. Can recommend. And they're pretty easy reads. And they usually also have some social component. I mean, the time traveler. The time machine. The time machine was as much a social commentary as it was about the tech. The technology was just sort of the literal vehicle by which Wells was able to talk about failed utopias and the ways that we thought things would go and how things ended up going. When he travels into the far distant future, humanity has splintered into the Eloi, who are these uh, semi-utopian, androgynous, golden-skinned, beautiful humans who have no concerns at all whatsoever because they're society is built on top of that of the subterranean Morlocks who live like garbage and are this subclass that has long ago been broken off of humanity because they're basically the underclass that the upper class literally drove underground because they didn't want to see or help them in any way and now they've like mutated and become these grotesque beings and Wells goes if we don't change what we're doing this is where we're going. the rich do socialism (laughs) end of rant Read the time machine. Read the time machine. I don't know if there's a better way to transition back into this I movie. I have an English degree. Than <laughs> f*** the rich. So let's do that. Let's transition yeah, back in. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. And get talking again about our feature presentation. 
When we last left off, Wells had gone to the hospital to see if he could find Stevenson, who had been hit by a car while wearing sunglasses. (laughs) Whom's among us? (laughs) And had been told, that dude came in as a John Doe, and sorry about that, he's dead. John Dunn. John Dunn, and no, you can't see him because you're not family. Bye. And so now, Wells is free of this burden, it seems. He doesn't have Jack the Ripper running around in quote-unquote utopia. And so now he can go do the things that maybe he would like to do better. Like get laid. Like get laid. (laughs) (laughs) So where do you go in San Francisco to get laid? You go to the The bank. bank. (laughs) You go to the bank. I couldn't quite tell. Did he go back for her? Was he just going back by there? I think he went back to the bank because it was the last lead that he had. She was the one who gave him the hotel. She might be able to give him more information or help him get more money. Like, she's the only person he knows. And so... And she said she'd give him a tour. And she is thirsty as hell because... She is. The moment she sees this dude standing outside of the bank... No, hold on. Her co-worker sees him first. She's co-worker like, hey, Amy, look, it's been three hours and he's back. And there's a land speed record set of her getting from her desk to outside this bank to be able to get in front of him and say, oh, you're back. Oh, great. Do you want to go to lunch? Do you want to go to lunch? Take you to lunch? And of course... He needs to eat. He's only had McDonald's. Yep. And so he says, yes, let's go to lunch. And there's a really cute little moment. She runs back inside, gets her purse, comes back out, and you can see there's this split shot. There's sort of like a little pillar or a little wall separating them. And they can't see each other, but we can see both of them. So as she's walking out of the bank, she stops. He, like, adjusts his hair. He zhuzhes himself up a little bit. And she, like, checks her skirt. Or something just real and it's just a second the two of them straighten out and then they turn and face each other neither one of them knowing that they're both a little bit nervous about this interaction i thought it was really sweet it's a date it's a date and i gotta say too i loved her character she did feel very modern to me you know she's worked very hard she even gives him this little spiel and when she first meets him and she says it took me three years of hard work to get to this position in the bank i take it very seriously like she is very serious about her job she's good at her job and sexually she's liberated those two things are not mutually exclusive she takes her work life serious and she takes her sex life seriously and she's very forward and to his credit, he's all about it. When yeah. she's like, can I take you to lunch? There's nothing that says, oh, but the lady can't do that. He's like, sure. Where are we going? He's a forward thinking guy. Let's do it. I'm broke as hell and this is your city. Where do you want to go? And she takes him for lunch. She says, oh, we need to go somewhere with a view. And she ends up taking him to, I don't know that these even exist anymore, but it's a rotating they do exist. restaurant where they're spinning around in circles while eating their food. Yes, and uh, he's a little uncertain about it, maybe a little motion sick. Uh, I would be. Yeah, but uh, as he does throughout this film, he gets his bearings pretty quick, tucks into his meal, enjoys it a lot more than McDonald's. Yeah, it's better than that Scottish place. (laughs) McDougal's. I I ate earlier, which there's another dub when you watch it, is he does say McDonald's, and I'm guessing that somebody in legal came back later and said, yeah, we can't do that, Yeah, and so therefore it becomes McDougal's. The joke still works. It's better than the Scottish place I ate earlier. The joke works even a little better because she doesn't comprehend the name. She just sort of goes, okay, and looks down into her food without correcting or Mm -hmm. explaining. She's just, okay, this guy doesn't know. I don't, I've never heard of McDougal's. I don't know. 
in the course of this talk, they're eating lunch. She has a hunch. She thinks, uh, you kind of act like a scientist. Are you a scientist? Mm -hmm. And he's a little delighted by that. How did you know? He's like, he fully looks like he just walked out <laughs> yes. of the dictionary definition he's of He's got elbow scientist. patches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And says, I'm also a writer. Oh, really? What did you write about? Oh, I mostly wrote about social issues. And then takes his shot and says, like, free love. To which So subtle. And she kind of takes that and runs with it and says, oh, free love. That does lead her into talking about, I hope you didn't think me forward. I speak my mind. I'm liberated in this. I'm liberated in that. I like my sex. He asks her at one point, I don't remember if it's at this meal or later, but he says, like, do you usually go out with your clients, essentially? And she says, no, but I liked you. Right. So that's cute. She explains to him, look, I'm telling you all of this stuff, but it's because I'm nervous. Yeah. And I babble when I get nervous. Do I make you nervous? Yeah, actually, you kind of do make yeah. me nervous. And so they've got to wrap this up and get moving. So she says, hey, do you want to take a drive across the Golden Gate? And he doesn't quite know what Golden that is. Gate. And they hop into her car, which he's never been in before. Mm -hmm. And he makes sure to watch. Well, no, what he's she's had doing. one car ride so far. He's had, he's had one he's car had ride. He's had one madcap car ride. But he's never ridden in the front. Right. And so this gives him an opportunity to sort of observe how a modern automobile works. And off they go across the Golden Gate Bridge. He tells her she's a very good driver. Which she likes to hear. She, li she says, I know. Thank you very much. He just kind of takes it in. Takes in the scenery. Takes in where they're going. And notably, he watches how she starts the car. Yeah. Notes like R for reverse, D for drive. That pedal does this. That pedal does that. This man is always paying attention. And she takes him across the bridge. They go into Marin County and end up in, I think, Muir Woods or something over there. And uh, sit around basically talking about her. And her ex-husband. So mm -hmm. she sort of sets up who she is for him. We met at an anti-war protest mm -hmm. to which he takes, oh, you were protesting the world war? Because earlier when he meets the shopkeeper, yeah. the guy just refers to the war. And it's only throughout the course of the film that he learns like there have been multiple world wars. She says, I met him at a war protest. And he goes, ah, World War Two and uh, sorry, World War One. And she says, how old do you think I am? And he goes, oh, World War Two. And she goes, Vietnam. I think it goes the other way. I think he oh. starts with World War Two and then goes to World War Three. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, World War Three. World War Three. No, Vietnam. Dumb, dumb Vietnam. Dummy. She and, just assumes he's British. I don't know. Right. You know what I mean? He's charming and he's British. <laughs> And that's where she met her husband at the time. It didn't work out because he wanted her to be a housewife. And like we said, she's a career woman and she didn't want that. And so things just didn't work. Wells reveals that he was married once too. And for very similar reasons, it didn't work out. She wanted me to be routine and I'm not routine. Yeah. They're walking through the forest while this is happening. And again, I appreciated the staging of this a little bit. She is walking ahead of him so that neither one can see their facial expressions. And this entire conversation is just they have to listen to each other. And they're just reacting to one another's stories without doing things that I feel were probably pretty typical and maybe are still typical of romances. And with the sort of meet cute situation where it's this very intense, they're smushed together in a Ferris wheel somewhere like they have to be in close physical proximity. And here... I think part of the sexual tension is the physical distance between them. Well, if you think about it, too, it's an interesting metaphor because they are in different times. 
Oh. Right? She's ahead of him. He's yeah. behind her. And they're making some sort of connection in between. I'm sure I'm reading way too much into that. I but, like it anyway. But, uh, uh, you know, for film theory, you'd go back and look at that and go, mm-hmm. oh, look, a thing. Yeah. They decide that they'd still like to keep going. And so they go to see a movie, which must be a trip for H.G. Wells. It is a trip for him because when we cut to the movie theater, we see her with her popcorn and we don't see him at all. Yes. Until she, like, pulls him up off the floor. He's hiding. He's hiding because of the very high definition quality of films in 1979. And we hear explosions and stuff. And then when they walk out of the film, the marquee says The Exorcist. The Exorcist 4. Oh, is it 4? 4. When they get out of the movie, that feels like, okay, we've had a big long day together. We just met and that should be the end of the date. But being the forward person that she is and sort of speaking her mind, Amy tells him, look, I'm not really ready for this to stop. If you're not doing anything later, can I cook you dinner? And he is not doing anything later because as far as he knows, he does not have to hunt a serial killer and a home-cooked meal sounds nice. And he either puts his arm around her or she puts his arm around her. And so this is, as they walk away together, this is sort of that first moment of physical contact between both of them that brings them together as a couple. So it's this big, fun, happy moment, and they sort of stroll off to go have their dinner. Problem is, as they're strolling away, they pass a little newspaper box, and the front page of the newspaper talks about a series of prostitute murders that have been happening in North Beach. Dun-dun-dun! Jackie is at it. One has just occurred, which, man, they ran that newspaper real quick. It happened like that morning or something. Like, when does he have the time? (laughs) He's got all the time in the world. He's got a time machine. Well, he he doesn't. That's true. He doesn't. doesn't. So he's He's got a fly jumpsuit, though. He sure does. So they go back to her place. And she's making dinner, whatever it is she's making. The phone rings, and it's her... The what phone rings? The Mickey Mouse phone. She has the phone I wanted as a kid. Me too! I was so happy to see it! I never knew anyone that had it, but it was in every catalog Mm -hmm. growing up, and everyone wanted that damn Mm -hmm. thing. Yep, yep. And Mary Steenburgen had it. It rings... It turns out to be the buddy, Carol, from the bank. Geraldine Barron is the actress who plays her. and Wants to know how it's going. Yeah, you only hear one side of the conversation. The but what you You took the getting, whole day off work. Uh-huh. Are you getting some or not? And, and she full, Amy fully, like, he's standing right there. And she's like, yeah, he's here. I'm cooking him dinner. Does not try to hide it mm-hmm. at all. I got to go. I got to I gotta get late. He's like, I'll tell you about it tomorrow. Bye. Yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> And she hangs up the phone and tells him, oh, that was Carol at the bank checking up on you. And and she wants me to ask you if London is crawling with Arabs because she wants to marry into oil. (laughs) And he has no idea what she's talking about. She excuses herself. She's going to slip into something more comfortable. (sighs) While she is doing that, he is experimenting in the kitchen with the garbage disposal. He just fully takes a spoon, sticks it in the garbage disposal, throws the button, and just has a little smile to himself about the mangled spoon. He just wants to see what happens. He just wants to see what happens. And then he hides the spoon. Because he doesn't want her to see it. And they have their candlelight dinner. It's very nice. It's very nice. Afterwards, they end up sitting awkwardly on the couch next to one another. So here's another one of those moments of being near one another but not looking at, at each other. It's very teenagers, hand in lap. It is. Sitting on the opposite sides of the couch. And then she basically says, sir, what are you doing? And his 19th century ass is like, when in Rome? Uh, he says, I don't want to take advantage of you or some version of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But right. he, he wants it, though. He wants, he wants to. <laughs> (laughs) But she confirms for 
him in language, surprising language. Very forward. She confirms for him that it's fine. It's fine. Please. Then they are on each other. And this is where Malcolm McDowell falls apart for me because he appears to kiss like a fish. Like he just goes for her whole face. There is no tongue that I can see. And yet it also seems to be all tongue. That and then they like separate. They talk for a second. They go back in for another one. Like they had to do this a bunch of times. And I'm just like, Mary, (laughs) listen, I know you married this man. It cannot have been for his kissing prowess. What were you doing? Well, this would have been my ick. If you're not familiar with the ick, it's when a woman goes on a date and the man does something that immediately turns her off forever. It's usually something small and stupid. Just he's dead to me now. And at that moment, at least temporarily, Malcolm McDowell was dead to me. I don't understand. He's been married. But he, he is has divorced. experience. <laughs> there could have been a reason beyond the fact that he's she wanted British. him to be plain. He's British. He's a 19th century British divorcee. Yeah. But like he was so suave and confident and delightful and charming up to that moment. And he's just Malcolm McDowell. I hope you got help. Maybe that's why she left him for Ted Danson. <laughs> Well, if Malcolm McDowell, is he still alive? Malcolm McDowell's alive, yeah. (laughs) If Malcolm McDowell ever becomes single again, and if, God forbid, you're ever on the market again, he's got no chance with you is what I'm hearing. No, Malcolm, I'm sorry. It's just not meant to be. When he kisses, I don't want to belabor Let's this Let's belabor point. it. This was the only point in the movie I had a physical exclamatory <laughs> reaction where I recoiled from the screen and began shouting, no, no, oh, God, no. Here is where my mind goes. It takes me back to, I think it was junior high health class, and they had a guest speaker come in who talked to us about the three types of kissing. Say on. And the three types of kissing were peaches. Just small peaches. Peaches. Plums. No. And alfalfa. No, don't make that face (laughs) at me. Oh, God. This was alfalfa (laughs) from McDowell. Oh, God, I wish you all could see his face, but I'm so glad you can't. Oh, that was awful. Never come at me with that face. Any man. So what you're saying is, Charlotte, I have no chance with you if we uh, end up single in another universe. I'm afraid not, Josh. At least not with the alfalfa thing. I have to accept that. Oh, God. Moving off the kissing thing, while they are making out such as it is. She seemed into it. I'll give her. I mean, it's true. Stevenson is off doing what Stevenson does, which is murder stuff. (laughs) He's killing prostitutes. He's killing prostitutes. He's actually rolling around in a cab through whatever the red light district is that he's rolling around in. I'm assuming it's somewhere in North Beach because that's where the last one happened. And ends up stopping on a corner, like walking around and looking up above one of the nudie clubs to find some lady... dancing in a glass box way up in the sky. She was like an advertisement for the strip club. And uh, yeah, it's the most 70s thing in this already very 70s movie. Yeah, like in of the seven veils sort of a thing. And she's up there. She's up at the height of where you would expect a streetlight to be in a full freaking glass box. Does she have music in there? I don't know. Who does have music 
is Stevenson because he pops his watch open at that moment. You hear the little tune play, which is really sort of like the Jaws music. Like, you know, when you hear that tune, somebody is going to die. I have no idea how he got her down from the box, but the implication is that she ends up being the next victim. Really? I thought so. Maybe. I'd have to go back and watch it again because I don't know that we ever see her. I'm making an assumption that he's just on a murder spree and that the reason we are seeing her up there and seeing the watch open is to connect the two. My impression of it was like she was just driving him into a murderous rage perhaps, and it didn't really, it almost didn't matter, and I kind of pictured him looking up at her and being like, damn her, she's up in that glass box where I can't kill he's her. The, he's the cat watching the fishbowl. Yeah, and like, it just is emblematic of the fact that he's living in this city of sin now, and this is the kind of society he's in, where they put their whores in boxes on the street, you know, like, oh, now I've gotta go kill somebody. Well, speaking of sin, mm. the next thing we see is Wells and Amy waking up together in bed. Mm. They've had their night of sin, Mm-hmm. And on the radio then, as she gets up to go brush her teeth or whatever, Wells hears about another prostitute being murdered in North Beach, which I assumed was this lady. Yes. He's very convinced that this is Stevenson. Stevenson isn't dead, that Stevenson's out there doing this Jack the Ripper thing. And Wells tells this to Amy. Hey, this guy that I'm chasing, he's murdering some people. She doesn't understand why he doesn't go to the cops. Well, okay, if there's a guy and you know and he's killing people, why don't you go to the cops? To which he's got to tell her, A, because they wouldn't believe me. And B, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me if I told you the full truth. And she assures him that's not right. She would believe him. I feel like there's some part of this conversation where she says, is it sort of a jurisdictional thing? Is it because you're like from Scotland Yard? Are they working with the cops? And he says, well... They they have an interest. They have an interest, yes. Yeah. And so she takes that to kind of mean that he's a detective. Right. He doesn't say that, but that's what she takes. And he lets her think that. And this is the 70s. She's got to get to work and tells this dude she met yesterday. Hang out here. Just stay at my place. Make yourself some breakfast. You know, when you leave and make sure you slam the door behind you, because if you don't, it'll stay open and the neighbors can come in or whatever and leaves him in her apartment to go to work. Like you do. As she is leaving, she unknowingly in her car as she's driving away passes Stevenson. Yeah. He's scoping out his next victim or getting sweeter clothes or whatever yeah, it is. I assume that he's getting sweeter and sweeter clothes because as he's murdering women, he's also taking their jewelry and pawning it or doing whatever. So he's just getting more and more cash. Good work if you can get it. Hey. She's at work, goes back to her friend Carol at work, who obviously wants to know how the so, day went. Oh, <laughs> And Amy tells her, A, wonderful, fantastic thing. And also, B, Herbert and I would love to have you over for dinner to the house because I want you to meet him. Mm -hmm. Oh, Herbert Uh, wants you to. You've got it bad, girl. You've Mm -hmm. got it real bad. She is starting to get back to work and do her work thing. But right at that moment, Stevenson shows back up with his big money belt, wanting to change more money. And whereas before she would have been very excited to do this, this time she is very, very scared to be near him because she's heard what Wells has told her. And now she's thinking, am I about to get murdered in this bank? So she gives him like the, oh, I'll be right back, calls the house. On a phone that he can see, like she doesn't go out of sight. She kind of gets to a phone where if he turned around, she'd have noticed she's making some phone calls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Wells has to pick up the Mickey phone. Doesn't quite know how the Mickey phone works. Figures it out and she says, he's here. What do I do? 
And he basically tells her, just don't worry. You're in the middle of a big bank. He's not going to off you in the bank. Keep him in play and I'll be there. Right. So she does what he asks. She goes back to the desk, tries to play nonchalant, says, oh, I just wanted to check the rates today. You know, they change and this is before the Internet. And so I wanted to make sure that uh, we get you an up to date thing. And he believes that part. Mm -hmm. She then unfortunately keeps talking and to find something to say. she talks when she's nervous. She talks when she's nervous and ask him how his stay at the Hyatt was. Immediately, he puts together, this woman told me about the Hyatt, and then Wells showed up at the Hyatt, and so therefore, this woman has talked to Wells. And then uh, his demeanor changes, and he threatens her. Yeah. Like, says, you know what? I think I'm actually going to take my business somewhere else and uh, tell Wells to bring me the key or you're dead. And does it, he's really good at doing threatening because he's sort of... He's a big guy and she's a little lady. Like Wells said, he's not going to kill me in the middle of this bank, but he comes into her space. He makes like he's going to leave the bank and then two seconds later is fully behind her desk, leaning into her ear saying, tell him or you're both dead. And this has the effect of upsetting her greatly. She finds Wells after this event. They're walking through the park or something and she's telling him, look, you either go to the police or I'm going to go to the police because this dude's nuts. Yeah. And that is the thing that Wells has to determine whether he is going to do. In a perfect world, that would be the only thing they would have to deal with. But unfortunately, it is not because while they are doing that and trying to determine whether or not to go to the police, Stevenson now knows Amy's name because he's been at the bank and he's seen her name tag and everything. And he knows that she is a threat and that she's been with Wells. And so how do you find someone in 1979 when you know their name? White pages. White pages, sure. I had a moment watch. He like goes into a phone booth, gets the white pages, and I just was reflecting. You could have just published people's phone numbers. Did you have to put their addresses in there too? Well, yeah. How were you ever, ever going to stalk someone appropriately if you didn't have their address? <sighs> Just a really cockamamie way of doing things. Like, and not... there, there would be like, you know, 14 A. Johnsons. So you would, right, you, you might need to know. all of them. That's right. Wait Somewhere now. they're still making phone books. I know that's true. Yeah. Somewhere they exist. I don't know that I'm in one. I hope not. Don't find me. <laughs> After the conversation with Amy and with Wells, the decision Wells makes is, okay, I am going to go to the cops. I'm going to make sure that I at least use that option because he has been threatening Amy. So goes to the cops speaks to Lieutenant Mitchell, played by Charles Chaffee, and tells him, look, there's this guy Stevenson. He's a Brit. I know that he is murdering people. He is your serial killer. I can help you stop him. And Lieutenant Mitchell is rightly... He's skeptical, but receptive. Right. He needs more information. Uh, So they run the name. He gives the name of Stevenson to his And they check check Scotland Yard's records. They check, like, Interpol. They check everyone. And nobody by this name pops up. Now, the detective does say nobody by that name pops up. It is entirely possible that he's using a different name. Without any other information to go on, there's nothing that we can do. Left without options... Wells decides that he has to up the stakes a little bit and present himself differently. Gentlemen, I'm not just Herbert who's coming to tell you about this. I actually work with Scotland Yard and I am a detective. Oh, really? You're a detective? What's your name? My name is Sherlock Holmes. He doesn't know that we know about Sherlock. Uh, and at that moment, like, he loses the detective yeah. immediately. The and detect- he knows he loses them because he yeah. asks him, he says, you don't believe me, do you? But the detective's like, oh, this guy's crazy. He's wasted our time. Listen, Mr. Holmes, <laughs> <laughs> failing any other actionable information, uh, there's, there's nothing we can do. The one thing it does accomplish is it makes him memorable to Mitchell. 
which may come around later. But for the moment, he's a kook. And he's got to go find a different way to approach this. Right. So going back to Amy's apartment, he he gets her back there. She gets herself into the apartment. Oh, the door. Stupid door. The stupid door is, uh, no, we, you know, didn't get slammed on the way out. So it's open. And this is time number two now. The door hasn't worked. By the rule of three, we got to know that this door is now going to be a problem again. And we can probably guess what's going to happen. But at this moment, what it is, is she goes into the apartment, doesn't notice that on the ground next to the door has been left an envelope with very Victorian script on it for HG. He secrets this envelope, opens it. It's on St. Bartholomew's Hospital stationery, which Stevenson just had with him when he traveled Listen, back in time. gentlemen, gotta be ready. That's true. I guess Wells took a flask. This guy took stationery. So it's, you know. You never know. You need what you well, need. Maybe it was off his, like, prescription pad or maybe. something. <laughs> but he, he writes him a note and basically says, I know where Amy lives. And so you need to do the right thing and give me the key or else... I am coming to kill her. Like, I remember seeing the word kill in beautiful Victorian handwriting. Wells does the only thing he can think of to do at that moment, which is to just to get her out of the apartment. He says, hey, I know we just got here, but let's go for a walk. You want to go for a walk? And she's like, yeah, all right. <laughs> all right. Great. I had a long day, but OK. So they walk out by the water. It is during this walk out by the water that he realizes he has to come clean and go for broke and tell her everything in the hopes that she maybe believes him. And we don't see him do that. We just see her reaction to that, which is we storming away. We see the beginning. Away. Right. We see the beginning because she thinks there's this big revelation coming. Yeah. He says, I need to tell you something. I'm going to tell you the whole truth. And he builds it up. My name is not Herbert. It's HG and I'm 113 years old. Right, right, uh-huh. right, 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 right. And she's storming off across a field going, I never want to see you again. Don't follow me. Don't talk to me. You're crazy. Yeah. Uh, so he's obviously told her about the time machine. He's told her about Jack the Ripper. He's told her about HG Wells and the rest of it. And she's like, this dude is nuts. And I can't believe that I'm, you know, gone I out with I spent the last 24 hours with this dude. Get away from me. And it, But he says, listen, I told you that you wouldn't be receptive to this, that you would think I sounded crazy, but I can prove it. Will you let me prove it? So she's like, I'm not doing anything else today. (laughs) What do you got? I can't go see Exorcist 4 again. So (laughs) what do you got? So what he does is he takes her back to the museum where the time machine is. He wanders her through and they kind of have this very, you know, she she's sort of semi receptive to it. Okay. She goes, all right. Yeah. There are pictures that look like you. Yeah. They look like you. you. Mm hmm. All right. Oh, yeah, that doesn't prove anything. There's a time machine. Okay, it's similar to what you told me about in terms of there being a time machine. He can see that the museum is getting close to closing time. And so he tells her, here is what I need you to do. I need you to go to the powder room. There's no further explanation given. No, but I understood. Yes, you yes. need to go to the powder room. Which Presumably he goes and hides in the in, men's room. In the men's room. And they are waiting for the museum to close. Night at the museum. Correct. While they are doing that, at some young lady's apartment, she opens the door and standing outside of it is our jumpsuited Jack the Ripper with his gold chains and his flowy hair. And basically Barry, he's basically Barry Gibb. Yeah. 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 And they have set up some sort of date. Some sort of date. Well, it's an in-call because she's getting stuff ready. Like she's got the drugs out and stuff. But I think there's some talk of money or some some monetary exchange or something there. Like we are given to understand that this is a prostitute because that's his M.O. He's not killing random women. Right. He's killing prostitutes. So he has his appointment. He comes in. She's like, make yourself comfortable. I'm going to go roll a J. Do you smoke? Do you want one? Yeah. He does not partake. 
but he does open his musical watch, which dun, 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 to all of us, we understand what's coming. Murdery murder. Yeah. And Meanwhile, he's still ripping. So for all of the movie to this point, as nutty and goofy as it has been, I've been with it. Those of you who can't see, Josh just took off his glasses and rubbed his eyes because he's about to have a big emotional experience. Anyone who knows me knows that when I rub my eyes that way, it's just the oh, it's, it's the physical equivalent of making that sound. When he slashes her. There is oh, this drives a me crazy. Goop, a goop of blood that like flies orange. back on his cheek, and it's orange. Have have they seen blood? I know for sensors <laughs> and things. Maybe back in the late seventies, you couldn't be like right on blood color and be too gory and all that. Okay, maybe, but it is sort of like someone like jizzed a Capri Sun on his face. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> That just made me fire some snot out of my nose. Um, The first murder in the movie, the blood's blood colored. Yeah. Maybe just because it's dark. I don't know. But like all of the other blood in the movie is fine. Maybe somebody forgot to bring the fake blood to set that day and they just used whatever makeup goop they had to hand. Maybe doobies turn your blood into McDonald's orange drink. You don't know. I don't know. But it uh, (laughs) it sure took me right out of it. She asks what time it is. He says it's later than you think. <laughs> slashes the throat. Goop on the face. I just, I, I couldn't. I had to take a minute. Uh-huh. Take some deep breaths before I could continue. <laughs> okay, so another dead lady. Mm-hmm. Another Jack the Ripper success. Yep. We go back to Wells and Amy now after closing time at the museum. They have been in their respective powder rooms avoiding the guard. He goes finally and gets her and they avoid what one guard there is wandering There's around a the museum. There's a very cute little moment where he gets her out of the powder room. They start out into the museum. He sees a guard and they both back up into the ladies' room and close the door, which for me was like, if you're inside the powder room, you're not going to be able to see if the guard suddenly comes around the corner. You could open the door again and he could be right there. You're taking a huge risk, y'all. But maybe the payoff is huge. And it is. What kind of a museum guard doesn't check the bathroom's after closing time. It was time. the 70s, man. It was the 70s. That's true. It was the Coke again. Cocaine. <laughs> they come out of the bathroom. The coast is clear. He takes her to the time machine. Okay, look. Here's the time machine. I can prove some things to you. She takes the thingy out. This the is the vaporizing thing. equalizer. Every time he shows somebody the time machine, they immediately take out the vaporizing equalizer and ask what this is. And he says, you're going to want to put that back in the machine. We're going to need <laughs> That's that. like being at Chernobyl and like pulling a fuel rod out <laughs> all the way and going, do? what does this do? <laughs> Please put that back. So she puts it back. Yeah, he tells her, you wouldn't want to go anywhere without that. That's not a great thing to have in your hand. And it does its little sparkly thing. So she does see it do its little animated sparkly thing. They climb into this tiny ass goldfish machine she together. She perches on his lap. And they squish in and close the little thing. And he says, okay, I'm going to show you how this works. I'm going to take you into the future. I'm not going to take you very far. I'm just going to take you a week forward. We're going to go to next Saturday. It's not even a week. It's like three days. Or three days. Yeah, whatever. in the middle of the week. Whatever the following Saturday is, that's where I'm going to take you. Yeah, because it's only a couple of days. So it's only going to take like a quarter of a second. You're not even going to realize that we've done it. It's going to be so fast. And the only indication that we as an audience get that it's done it is we see the little little dial tick over real quick to Saturday instead of Wednesday. And but, she's super on embrace. She's great. Uh-huh. This was so fun. And she climbs out of the machine. Yeah, we're the in the future. <laughs> museum looks the same. 
that changes because she's leaving the museum, wandering through the museum, gets towards the front, like the coat check or the front desk, and decides that she's going to look at the newspaper and immediately notices the date. The date is Saturday. This is a newspaper in the future, and it's proof enough to her that something has happened, that they have gone forward. But what's in the newspaper? Well, it's when she flips it below the fold, she finds out that she has become a victim. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Which me immediately, I was like, no, but how could she have been? Because if you're Jack the Ripper. I'm ex- not. Experiencing, I know. If you're experiencing linear time, you have to go Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You've got to experience all of those dates, right? But during that time, Amy's in the time machine. She's not home to be killed. She's traveling forward through time. So how the hell could he have killed her? And that was honestly the first part in the movie where I felt they weren't obeying the time travel rules. They weren't obeying the time travel continuities because they'd actually been pretty good about it to that point. But as it turns out, they did obey the time travel continuities, and we will be able to get back to that in part three. And I think there's two ways to explain it, too. And I won't spoil anything, but I think there are two ways that you could look at it and say either one, multiple timelines. It's not how multiple timelines work. (laughs) It could be. You don't know. I do know. And two, he only took her forward to Saturday, and then eventually they're going to go back to where they came from. And so when they go back to where they came from, then she's going to live forward and he can kill her during that time. Right. So that is also a possibility. That is also a possibility, yes. Time travel makes no sense, and we'll find out how this happened when we get back. Hey, have you listened to the Art Curious podcast? Have you read the book? Have you watched the YouTube channel? No? I just, what are you doing with your life? Art Curious is a universe of content about all things unusual in art. It's the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful. It's hosted by the lovely and talented Jennifer Dassel. That's my wife. And it's the most bingeable content around. Is the Mona Lisa a fake? Was Vincent Van Gogh murdered? Was Donald Duck responsible for beating the Nazis? And what was the deal with Andy Warhol? Like, really, what was the deal? Listen, read, and watch fascinating stories like these and more when you subscribe today to Art Curious. Visit artcuriousmedia.com for more. Art Curious. Listen, read, watch. Art. It's subgenre. We are talking about the 1979 time travel, time twisty murder, comedy, romance, bad kissing movie called... Time after time. Mm-hmm. I think I said that before. Time after time. You did mention that, yes. All right. Let's get back to talking about the feature presentation. We left off with Amy having found out that not only has she gone into the future to the Saturday, but by Saturday, she is going to have been murder death and is going <laughs> to become one of the victims of our Jack the Ripper. That's not good. You hate to see it. You hate to see that. So now they got to do something about that. So back to the present day they go in the time machine, her and Wells. Wells then suggests, hey, you know, maybe you should think about going back with me even further to 1893. You could come live with me in old London, and wouldn't that be great? 
For whomst, sir? <laughs> For whomst? Let's start with medicine. <laughs> little, uh, little. She gives him a little check your privilege moment there. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, I'm sure that sounds great to you, white dude. Have you seen this rockin' bod? They're gonna make me put a corset over it, and I don't want to do that. And I can't work, and I'm a career lady. And my job is as important to me as your work is to you. And he immediately respects it. Backsoff does not suggest it again. But now they're kind of stuck. Well, she suggests maybe we could go to the future. Oh, yeah, that's right. You want to forget the past. Let's go to the future. Future's dope. And he's like, yeah, but if we do that, Jack gets to keep on a killing. Yeah. And I can't let that happen. I can't let this utopia of San Francisco that I'm in become befouled by Jack the Murder. Jack the Murder? Become befouled by Jack the Ripper and all of his murder stuff. Right. Even though there's already plenty of murder stuff going on in San Francisco. Who needs there's one even more? a mention of the Zodiac Killer earlier in the film. Is there? Yes. When back at the police station, there's like when they first find out about Jack, oh, there's this guy who's, you know, there's another one, detective, another one's come in. Uh, and the detective says something like, oh, they're really out for it, aren't they? First Zodiac, now uh. this guy. They get an idea of saying, okay, we can't go to the past. We don't want to go to the future because we got to stop Jack the Ripper. But we do have time on our side. Like, let's maybe use that to our advantage and see if we can solve this problem. We know what's going to happen. We know where he's going to be and when. So they know that about when he is supposed to have killed Amy. But there's also another victim that happened in between that, and they know about that one as well. Yes, because that one's also in the newspaper. So she grabs the paper and she says, look, I'm supposed to die, but there's a woman who dies before me, like the night before. It's in McLaren Park at 9 p.m. or whatever it is. If we get there, we can stop him. It's basically the clock tower in Back to the Future. Yes. We've seen in the paper it's going to strike at this point, so we just need to harness that to our advantage. Yes. And then I think Wells says, "Okay, I'll go. And she says, well, I'm coming with you. And he says, no, absolutely not. And she says, "Uh, absolutely. Yes. First of all, you can't drive. And off they go. And off they go. To do that. She wants to buy a gun. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She's like, if this dude's out here and he's going to kill me and he's going to kill other people, we're going to kind of need a thing. And so I would like to go buy a gun. Uh, And he says, I can't get on board with that. No. Because uh, the first man to raise his fist is the first man out of ideas. Yeah, he quotes that from somebody else. I can't remember who quotes it. He says he quotes it, but I looked it up and I think it's just a quote. He says that. I'm quoting the screenwriter when I say... After he says that, it's another reason she tells him that she loves him. It's a nice delivery. Like, she's, okay, emotionally, she's like, we got to get a gun. Baby, we got to go get a gun. And there's, I'm not going to let him do this. And he has to hurt, you know, this moment of clarity where he says, we're not going to stoop to the level of violence, which sort of brings her down to earth. The way that she says it is, I love you. (laughs) Like... I want that. Um, <laughs> respect and on. He's so cute. Okay, fine. We won't get a gun. Now what do we do? <laughs> While they're working out this issue amongst this them plan. of guns or no guns or yeah. plans, Disco Knife is out at the clubs and is so fly <laughs> that he doesn't even have to go find his next victim. She comes to him. Which I don't know how disco clubs were set up in the 70s. I feel like it can't have been this, which is he is sitting alone at a tiny table, table for one. A cafe table. A cafe table in the middle of the dance floor. Yes. Everyone is grooving around him. Yes. 
you can watch the extras doing all their sweet 70s moves. And he looks upset. He looks annoyed. He's getting bumped by people, which like, sir, you could have gotten a table somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Also, who put this table out here? (laughs) Were you here first? Were the dancers here first? Either way, he's sitting there with his beverage. Just waiting. There's some foxy lady that spots him from across the room. She looks like Cleopatra. And so Stevenson takes her from the club and puts her in the car and off they go driving, presumably to her demise. But uh, he doesn't kill her in the club. Nope. Manages to get her out in the McLaren Park. And so Amy and Wells are also headed to the park. They're in the car and screaming down the road to get there. Problem is, Amy gets a flat tire on the way because, of course. Yes. Right? This is like in the horror movie where you trip when you're running away. She gets the flat tire. So they get out of the car. He's like, what's the problem? She's like, I blew a freaking flat. She's so mad. Of course this is when this happened. And he goes, well, can you change it? Doesn't even question. Doesn't know how cars work. He assumes this is a solvable problem. She's like, yeah, I can, but it's going to take a minute. He's like, well, what do I do? She's like, call the cops. There's a payphone over there. Here's a dime. Go. So he books it off around the corner. And we get this great back and forth of like him running and then cut back to her. She's on the tire iron in her heels, jumping up and down (laughs) on it to get the lug nut loose. And I'm like, this bitch has done this before. She knows what she's about. Good for her. And thankfully, Wells is able to figure out what the hell a payphone is (laughs) and how to use a dime and whatever. Yeah. There are phones all over the place. Go find one. She doesn't even say pay phone. She's like, you're going to need a dime. Do you have a dime? No, I don't have a dime. Here's a dime. Go find a phone. If you don't know what to do, read the instructions. So he books it, finds pay phone number one. He sees the sign. It says out of order. There's no reason H.G. Wells will have ever seen the words out of order in that order. But he goes, oh, out of order. Curses. And then, but right next to it is a working phone. So he gets into the working phone. He's got his little dime. And you see him lean in and he looks okay. He has to put put the coin in. And the thing happens to him that happens to everybody who's ever used a payphone. He misses with the coin. He tries to put the coin in and it immediately drops to the ground and he's got to like fumble around in the dark for the coin while she's trying to get the lug nuts off. It's a beautiful thing. So he gets his call across by reading the instructions and tells the cops, hey, you need to go to McLaren Park because murder, murder, murder. It's coming. And he gets back to Amy, who has managed to fix the car and all of that. And off they go, jetting away to the park to save the lady. It's worth noting on the phone, he does give his name again as Sherlock Holmes. True. That's important as well. (laughs) Uh, This is Sherlock Holmes. And so you now have the cops racing to the park. You have them racing to the park. We don't know who's closer. But pulling up to the park after having gone through all of this, they arrive to see that not only have the cops gotten there before them, but the cops have also gotten there too late. They're fishing a body out of the pond. Uh, There's another interesting thing that Wells does in this moment as they're driving by and they see all the flashing lights. Wells tells her, like, keep driving. He's kind of like got his head down because he knows that the cops are going to see these randos and want to stop and go, well, hey, who are you and how did you know to be here? He doesn't want to be caught as the potential perpetrator here because he knows what they're going to make of this. And this has a giant effect on Amy because she knows that she's next. They haven't been able to stop this one. That doesn't bode well for stopping hers, and she doesn't want to die. She's freaking out. I'm freaking out, man. Well, you remember the call that Sherlock Holmes made on the payphone payphone. a little while ago in the middle of the night? Yeah. Well, that comes back here because after this whole murder thing has gone down in the park, Lieutenant Mitchell, remember him, Mm -hmm. back at the police station, gets a rundown on who called last night or whatever and finds out, oh, yeah, we got a call from that. We got that, a tip off. From Sherlock Holmes. And Lieutenant Mitchell says, I don't I don't think he was the tipper. I think there's something else going on here. No, he did happen to call right before the murder. 
That is suspicious. That's suspect. It doesn't look good it for looks, him. It looks bad It looks Wells. bad. At Amy's, Wells is telling her, look, I've got to run out. Bri-. Doesn't tell her why. I've got to run out briefly, but I want you to stay here. Of course, she Try doesn't to get want him rest. to go. Right. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. No, no, no. It's fine. I'll be back in less than an hour. You try to get some rest while I'm gone. And he says, do you have anything you can take to help you sleep? And she says, it's not Klonopin, but she's got... Valium. Val- she's like, I've got Valium. And he gives her a blank look and she says, it's a anxiety medication. And he says, okay, great. If I'm not back yeah. by 6.45 or whatever, that you are out of here, where do you like to stay? Where's your favorite place to stay in town? If I'm not back, go book yourself a nice room at that place. Yeah. The Huntington Hotel. The Huntington Hotel. I will meet you at the Huntington if I can. So she sets an alarm. She takes Valium and she chases it. Uh, he says, here's here's some of the, my brandy. And she drinks some of the brandy and she is out like a light. Yeah, not a great decision. No, but it's the 70s. So she's like, sure, of course, I'm going to take this I have Valium, a Valium and some brandy from the 1800s. Sure. Yeah, that's that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> what could go wrong? What could go wrong? She really needs to sleep. She has not slept in two days, basically. If you think about it, I mean... They were up all night together the right. first night. Then she immediately went to work. And like then they've been on their feet all day and they immediately had to go. He put her in the time machine. Then they had to go stop True. a murder. They failed to stop the girls running on empty. Wells has gone out on a mission that he has not told her about. The reason he has not told her about it is because Wells has decided he is going to buy a gun and goes to the local pawn shop where guns are aplenty. Because Wells has already figured out that you can get what you need at a pawn shop. Right. (laughs) And he's got a couple of bucks. And so he goes and buys himself a pistol. Okay, he's going to protect her. He returns to her house within the hour that he promised her that he was going to. And unfortunately, the cops who are suspicious of him having made that call in the middle of the night are waiting for him and take him away. And they take him away as Amy sleeps blissfully unaware just inside as he's screaming, Amy, get out of the house. Amy, get out of the house. Yeah. And that's bad. The extra (laughs) bad. It's not great. It's not great. (laughs) The extra bad part of it is that the damn door is open again because he didn't slam it when he left. That's also bad. Dun, dun, dun. All right, so they take H.G. Wells, Sherlock Holmes, down to the <laughs> Down to the jail. station, where one of the best interactions happens. Maybe we're not here yet, but you go on. When they book him, they take his personal effects. That means that they are taking his eyeglasses. He says, do you need my glasses? Do you need to take those? Yeah, and they're like, yeah, we need those. Okay. They take his big wad of money, mm-hmm. and they take the key. Yes. And do you really need this? And he gives it up kind of easy for my money. But But he does say, like, you don't need this. This won't help you. Yeah. And then they say, no, we're taking it. The one thing they let him keep is a dime so that he can make his one phone call. His one phone call. And he calls the Huntington Hotel, which is where he's told Amy to be if he doesn't get back. And they don't have a listing for an Amy. Why? Because she's passed out of sleep at (laughs) Homestead. So it's going great. So this is where we then get to the interrogation where we're back with Lieutenant Mitchell. Lieutenant Mitchell is talking to Wells. Mitchell puts him through the ringer and Wells is like, look, I don't really need you to believe me, but this woman is going to die. Please send somebody over to the house. Mitchell asks him, like, doesn't buy it, says, we're going to stay here until you tell me the truth, because what you've told me so far is nonsense. And ultimately, Mitchell says, you got to tell me the whole thing again. What's your story? Give it to me again. And Wells is like, all right. 
My name is not Sherlock Holmes. My name is H.G. Wells. I traveled forward in a time machine from 1893 to stop Jack the Ripper. And I know how it sounds, but that is what happened. So please send a car to Amy's house right now because Jack the Ripper is going to kill my girlfriend tonight. And it's just such a perfect encapsulation of the entire plot of the film. The character is doing this beautiful nod to the audience. This whole premise is ridiculous, ladies and gentlemen. We know that. Uh Let's just say it. And we'll let everyone that he's interacting with acknowledge the absurdity of the situation. They don't buy it, but it's true. That's literally what's happening. So they're not letting him go. No, they're not letting him go. And isn't it at the end of that interrogation where he says, basically, I'll confess to... I'll confess to anything. Anything. Just please send a car. I killed them all. Now will you send a car? And they send a car. Right about this time, she wakes up groggily, looks at the alarm clock, sees that it's 6.45. She's supposed to die, I think, at 7.15. So she's like, okay. But she gets her luggage and she puts the stuff in her luggage. And now we also see at the same time, Jack the Ripper is headed her place. So we've got this like West Side Story convergence of elements. We don't know who's going to get there first. We don't know if she's going to get out in time. And she gets her bag packed as well as she's going to get it packed, gets herself as far as her front door and is about to make her escape when she sees the knob turning. And we know that probably Jack is on the other side of this knob and it's too late. She's screwed. So we leave it with that little bit of suspense there for a moment. And I think that's when probably we cut back and we see Wells confessing and doing his, hey, can I think we I think maybe so. And then we cut back to her and she's hiding in a closet. The knob is turned outside. There's somebody wandering through the house, et cetera. He can see her luggage has been opened and is like strewn across the living room where yep. she has run back to her bedroom. And all he has to do is follow the trail of clothes to right. see where she's gone. And then within moments, within not very long after that, the cops finally get to the apartment. They get to the front door. Front door is open. And the first cop goes inside and we think, oh, he's going to either discover Jack or he's going to rescue her or some combination of those two. And that's not what happens. He tries not to throw up at what he sees. He, he tries not to throw up and run, essentially runs out of the apartment. Second cop peeks in and then gives us as an audience a chance to see what's inside. And what's inside is a lot of blood, murder, death, kill and 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 a hand, part of a hand and forearm just lying in the middle of. And it's very clearly a woman's hand. And it's very clearly a mannequin. (laughs) This is up there with. They couldn't get a real woman's hand. Right. So this is up there with. It was 79. You could have got a real woman's hand if you wanted (laughs) one. But this is up there with the orange stuff on the face in terms of a moment where I went, "Mm, Mm. guys, spend a couple of more dollars. Yeah, they didn't even really bloody it up or anything. It's just completely unnecessary to see the hand, by the way. But it's just a random lady's hand laying out in the middle of the room. Murder has happened or at least de-armification. And something is very, very bad. Amy is no more. And they had me for a second because I thought that the twist was going to be that Amy somehow, because we've had this whole movie, she can do anything she wants. She's motivated. She changes her tire. She, she knows what she wants. She's going to turn it around somehow. And I was like, oh, girl's dead. Yeah. She's <laughs> not even just dead. She is filleted she's dead. She's dead. And then we cut back to the police station. And they're apologizing. Lieutenant Mitchell is apologizing to Wells. He just, I mean, like wholeheartedly, too, he says, I'm, yeah. I'm so sorry. A, it wasn't you because you were here. B, your girlfriend's been splattered all over her apartment. So my bad. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I hope you have a great night. Uh, you can get your stuff at the front. They let him go. Seems like they would have done a bit more paperwork, but they let him go. <laughs> they don't want to get sued, so what and, if we just let him let him go quietly? And they push him out the door, and he's taking a stroll home through the Palace of the Legion of Honor, which is this big monument in the middle of the city, down by the water in the city, I guess, that they have had a conversation about him and Amy previously, oh, and that's yeah. sort of he his way it's home. made of marble. She yeah. says it's made of plaster. It's made of plaster. Yeah. And so he's on his way home through there. And in the course of walking through there at night, which is creepy enough already, he hears Stevenson's musical watch and he hears Amy's voice. Doesn't see Amy, but hears her voice. And for a moment, it's unclear whether this is what he's really hearing or whether this is memory or whatever this is. It's just kind of a ghostly moment. Just saying his name. It doesn't take too long, though, for him to realize that he actually is hearing that. And that actually is Amy's voice because he can see her standing at the end of this plaza that he's in. You know, you hear her voice, you turn, you see her. She looks like hell. But for me, for I had one beautiful second of vindication where I was like, yeah, she did kill him and she took his watch. And now they're going to be, oh, Jack the Ripper is holding her hostage. Yeah, we find out pretty quickly, was Jack in her apartment? Yes. Was there a murder? Yes. But it wasn't Amy. Remember when we invited Carol over for dinner? Well, she came. (laughs) She came. She saw. She left. She is now a casserole. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Carol just came over to eat some dinner and find out about Arabs in London. And unfortunately, that didn't work out for her so well. No. But now... Amy is under the control of Stevenson. Stevenson is demanding the key in person or else he will kill Amy in person. And Wells requests on Stevenson's honor. As a gentleman. As a gentleman that he won't hurt Amy if Wells turns over the key. And Stevenson says, I give my word as a gentleman. I give my word as a gentleman. Enough for Wells. Wells tosses him the key. Okay, now let Amy go. And Stevenson reminds him, yeah, remember when I said my word as a gentleman? You should know by now, I am not a gentleman. And he hauls her off into the car. And off they go. go. She's looking at him like, how could you be this stupid? (laughs) I'll miss you, you dumbass. You dumb, dumb person. (laughs) They take off in the car to zip through San Francisco somewhere. And then one of my favorite things happens. Wells books it back to her place. Yes. Gets in her car. And goes off after them in the most anticlimactic, climactic car chase because he has no idea what he's doing. He's basically just emulating the cab driver from earlier. He doesn't know the laws. He doesn't know about turn signals. He knows what the other car looks like, and he's going to chase it. And reader, that is what he does. If you've ever been to Disneyland and ridden Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, where the car just spins in circles and knocks off, that is this car chase. Yeah. She's driving fine. Stevenson's making her drive the getaway car. Yes, because he doesn't know how to drive either. Correct. Wells is behind her just nailing everything in sight, but catching up because he's like a bat out of hell towards him. Uh, And finally, eventually, both Amy and Stevenson figure out that he's in hot pursuit. Stevenson says, go faster. She says, mister, if you make me go any faster, I'm going to wrap us around a phone pole, which I loved because she's talking back to the guy who's holding her hostage. Mm-hmm. Uh, she got nothing to lose. She got nothing to lose at this point, And she's delighted that her boyfriend's back. And, and there's going to be trouble. Hey, yeah. hey, nah. <laughs> <laughs> The car chase ends with them simultaneously, really, all getting to 
the museum, to mm-hmm. the Wells exhibit at the museum. and Oh, yeah, because Stevenson, you can see him change his plan halfway through. He tells her suddenly, like, okay, well, then go left over here. We're changing. Here's where we're going. Yeah. And Wells is close enough to figure out what they're doing. As it should, all of this ends back in front of the time machine inside the museum. And there's a standoff. There is a standoff, kind of. And this was actually one of the most sort of cinematographically unclear parts of this for me. Because Stevenson has the key, he's got Amy, and then he's trying to pull Amy into the time machine with him. And she, I guess, does something to get him to, like, she just, like, twists his wrist or something, and he just randomly lets her go. There's no reason for him to do that. She's all his leverage. And he just is like, all right, fine. Well, and right before that, Wells has gotten so far as to beg for her life. Right. right. He is down on his knees and there's tears and, yeah. and let her go, let her go. And he, Stevenson, doesn't affect him. He's, no, he's not he's going to let her, her go. With him. He's going to take her. And you're right. In that moment, he tries to pull her inside and it just doesn't work for one reason or another. It looked to me like the fob of his watch, the musical watch, got wrapped around something. He had to untangle himself. Oh. And that gave her the moment to, to get, get away. away. Okay. It was that, not clear. It wasn't clear. I remember there was some quick cut to his watch and then she's escaping and she kind of falls into Wells' arms. And then another unclear thing. So now Stevenson can get clear, except that Wells... You want to talk about unclear things. Let's talk about this one. Wells pulls the flux capacitor. Yes. Just yanks it out, looks at... He holds it up. Stevenson sees that he has it and then goes anyway. He just goes. He knows what happens when you don't have the flux capacitor. There's a moment where they look at each other. Yeah. And Stevenson hits go. And Stevenson was in the room at the beginning when it was explained that you can't travel without this. Yes. So he knew. Stevenson gives H.G. Wells a nod like, okay, dude. Do it. And it's almost like a giving up. But why? But why? (laughs) He's gone to all this trouble the whole time so that he can hop across timelines and do murder. Do murder. And then, is he tired of murdering? Is he tired of running? Is he tired of existence? I don't know what it is, but there's something there that I think we're supposed to mean that he's like, you know what? I'm going to take myself off to infinity. Peace. And I did not understand that. I didn't either. Okay. I'm glad I'm not the only one because every read I got off of it with the, hey, you've been warned, the nod between them and then just sort of the acceptance and the pushing of the button by Stevenson was him causing his own death and being fine with it. Yeah. And that yeah, that doesn't read to me as a character. I don't understand. No, that. that was I think that was just a shoddy bit of writing. I blame the three writers that were working on it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Nonetheless, he pushes the button and immediately... To infinity and beyond. To infinity beyond uh, vaporizes in a shower of Star Trek sparkles. And Jack the Ripper is no mo. And that's why, folks, history never caught him. Oh. I mean, and even there's a moment where Wells says, like, Jack the Ripper's reign of terror is done or yeah. whatever. History will never again see Jack the Ripper because he went to infinity. He was, he was vaporized. He's, he's gone. In 1979 in San Francisco. <laughs> That's why you never found any trace of him. <laughs> well, he's out of the picture, but we Whew. still have a problem to solve. Our lovers. Our lovers, right. Wells tells Amy that, look, I know... We're from different times. The police are coming. We need to say goodbye before the police arrive because I can't stay. I got to go back to the past. I've got to dismantle this goldfish so that no one can 
use it for nefarious Society's purposes anymore. Society's not ready for this technology Correct. yet. And, and what has he said? Until man can master himself, they have no use for time. It's another saying that sounds like he's quoting someone, but it's probably him quoting himself. But this is also a break in the continuity because, and I didn't mention this much earlier, when he first time travels to 79 and shows up in the time machine in the museum, there is an exhibit already built for the time machine, and it seems there's been some sort of merging, like somehow his time machine shouldn't be able to travel to that because there's a physical one already in that space. So there should have been a collision of, there should have been, there were two time machines. Yes. The one that had traveled through linear time and the one that time jumped. So how they merged, let's not question that. If for some reason there was a merging of the two, then the model time machine was a functioning time machine yes. that was on display that someone had built. But perhaps without the key and the capacitor, right. who knew? But in any event, there was an exhibit dedicated to it, which means it had been sitting there for 80 years. Which means he didn't destroy it. Which means he, he didn't destroy it. Mm -hmm. Multiple timelines. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I can't go. I got to go back and do that thing, which he may or may not do. Oh, and by the way, see all these books that it says I wrote? I got to go write these. I got to go write all these books, whatever they are. Hopefully they're fiction. And he says, every age is the same. It's only love that makes them bearable. And I got to go back because that's where I belong. And he says, you're important to me, but I'm important to me too, yeah. basically. My life is almost as important to me as your life is yes. to me. And he gets in the time machine. And so that's going to be their farewell. He's going to go back. He's going to leave her here. They had a fling. And that was that. Except Amy, being the active woman that she is, makes a decision for both of them and runs and hops into the time machine. And I'm going. Let's do it. But warns them, look, you're going to have to be OK. I'm changing my name to Susan B. Anthony. <laughs> That's just going to be the way this is going to be. <laughs> but she does not change her name to Susan B. Anthony. That is correct, because the time machine boop, 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 flies back through time. They presumably go back to where everything started, leaving San Francisco. So she disappears from 1979 San Francisco. She becomes a missing person in right. 1979. But shows up in 1893. And lives out her life the way that she's going to live it out. And we find out a bit of how that turned out with a postscript. And in real life, H.G. Wells married Amy Catherine Robbins in 1895. She was one of his students. He was married first to his cousin, and that lasted for about 30 seconds. And uh, then he fell in love with Amy Robbins, who later became known as Jane, and married her. And they had a wonderful marriage until she died at like 55 years old or something. And died in 1927, I think. The, yeah, the and he was real. He was super broken up about it, but he also had sh tons of affairs along the way. And I don't know if that was like a free love thing, if she knew about it. I he was into the free love thing. I don't know. But he did love his Amy. And then he died in 46, so died roughly 20 years later after her. So medicine worked out for him. Maybe not so much for her. I think he had more children or something even after she died. He had so many kids just going around giving bad kisses to everybody. And I'm reading also that director Simon Wells, born in 1961, the author's great-grandson, was a consultant on the future scenes in Back to the Future Part 2. How about that? Too this. bad it wasn't Back to the Future Part 3. Multiple timelines. Hey. So many loops within loops. That's it. That's the 1979 film, Time <gasps> After Time. That is Jack the Ripper and H.G. Wells and Mary Steenburgen on a collision course with Destiny. And we did it. We did it. Okay, let's wrap everything. I mean, we talked enough about this. We've talked yeah. a long time about this, but wrap it up with any last thoughts, any last looks. I'm not playing Nick's thing again. I've stopped doing that earlier in the What's season. What's Nick's thing? 
You you didn't hear I the last this. looks? No. Do you not listen to any of my other episodes? You just appear on them and don't listen to any others. I don't even really listen to the ones that I'm on. When Nick, They're very long. When They are very long. When Nick was on the show in the very first episode of the season, I was going to have a whole new thing for last looks, like a sound effect, and I hadn't made one yet. And Nick decided to just say something, and for a while it became this. Last looks. Which is the most awful thing I've ever created in my life. (laughs) And I refuse to play it again, and yet I just did. Oh, my God. I blame you. Yeah, we don't need that. No. No, I think we've said all that needs to be said. Okay. Let's move on. And that means we're moving on into our quiz segment, which is called You Can't Handle the Truth. And you can't handle the truth. I am going to be asking our guest host, in this case, Charlotte Moore Lambert, three multiple choice questions. Charlotte, if you can answer two of those three questions correctly, you win a prize that I have no way of rewarding to you. And yet I'm going to promise it anyway. And today you are playing for Sparkle Effects. Josh, I'm queer. I provide my own Sparkle (laughs) Effects. (laughs) I'm going to give you more. Okay. I'm going to give you the bed knobs and broomsticks right. sparkles. Okay. If you can get two of three Are of the questions. Are you just going to throw glitter at me? Because then I? you're going to be vacuuming glitter out of this room for the next five years. What, what's the guy, Rip Taylor? That reference is way beyond you. No, never mind. I made a Rip Taylor reference, and I won't do that again. Here we go. Are you ready? No. Charlotte. Let's do question number one. San Francisco is known as the home for some pretty remarkable innovations like denim jeans and the electric television and the waterbed and the cable car and trans rights and trans rights (laughs) and supposedly what ubiquitous culinary confection. Is it A, the birthday cake? Is it B, saltwater taffy? Or is it C, the fortune cookie? I'm going to go with the fortune cookie. You're going with C, the fortune cookie? I am. That is correct. Is it a Chinatown thing? Uh, Sort of. Despite popular belief that the fortune cookie is a Chinese invention, and though its origin remains under debate, around 1890, there was a Japanese man, Makoto Hagiwara, who was a Japanese immigrant who was overseeing the Japanese tea garden in Golden Gate Park. And he got a local Japanese bakery named Ben Kyoto to create these specific cookies for his place. Now, that's never 100% been proven, but this thing that became a Chinese staple, which no one is quite sure why that's true, was actually created in America, by, a, by Japanese a Japanese bakery guy. by a Japanese guy. Yep. Okay, well, you got the first one right. All right. Good job. Thanks. Good job. Thanks. Let's move on to question number two. Let's do it. In modern San Francisco, the victims of a time-traveling Jack the Ripper might find themselves with a relatively unique problem, besides being dead, of course, mm. due to a long-standing city ordinance. What is the ordinance meant to stop? Is it A, burial? It is illegal to take up real estate by burying dead people in San Francisco. Is it B, dying? It is technically illegal to be the victim of murder in San Francisco. Or is it C, bleeding? It is illegal to distribute potentially hazardous fluids without a permit, including one's own blood. I'm going to go with it's illegal to die in San Francisco. It's illegal to die within the city limits of San Francisco? You can't die (laughs) in San... (laughs) I don't know. Um, no. Ah! No, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
It's actually A, it's burial. Oh. In 1902, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted to halt all burials within the city limits due to space issues. To make more room, they dug up graves and moved any future graves down the road to the city of Colma. So because of this restriction, there's only two cemeteries within the city limits, one behind the Mission San Francisco Diocese and the National Cemetery in the Presidio. Oh, only Mission two. San Francisco Diocese. Diocese, I'm sorry. No, it doesn't say diocese. It's oh. diocese, D-E, little D-E, oh. A-S-I-S. Doesn't A-S-I-S? matter. A-S-I-S? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would think diocese too. Uh, oh, oh, no, okay. So diocese? Diocese. Okay. Whatever it is. You can't die and be buried in San Francisco. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, we got one and one. Okay. You're still alive. Okay. Unlike the victims of Stevenson in this uh, film. Right. Oh, oh. Yeah. Mm. Want to do three? Yeah. Question number three. If time after time really happened... Stevenson's Jack the Ripper might find some much-needed support in his evil doing from a Bay Area regular named Carl. Who in the world is Carl? Is it A, Carl is the nickname of the San Francisco Fog? B, Carl is a psychic said to have helped the Hillside Strangler, the Golden State Killer, and the Zodiac evade police capture? Or C, Carl is the lead singer of the San Francisco punk band Jack and the Rippers? Ah... You're going for the win here. I know. It's a lot of pressure. It is. Sparkle effects are on the line. You know what? I don't actually care if I'm wrong about this one. I'm going with Carl the Fog. Carl is the Fog is your answer? Yeah. Survey says... Yeah! Yes! Yes! Great. San Francisco, of course, is known for foggy weather. It's covered in it more than 100 days a year. And while the origin of this is unclear, locals have been known to refer to that fog as Carl. Oh, Carl. And I'll have you know, Carl the Fog even has his own Instagram account. <sighs> you got two out of three. Hey, so you get the applause. Sparkle me, bitch. You won. I did it. That tune, of course, means it's rave, rental, or refund. This is our time to give our last review on the movie. Is it a rave? This movie is awesome. Is it a rental? This movie's kind of, it's fine. Or is it a refund? This is a meh. I never want to see this movie again. Charlotte Moore Lambert, what say you about time after time? It's a rental borderline rave. I think it depends kind of what mood you're in and what your sense of whimsy is. I know that my husband did not think very highly of this movie and might consider it a rave as a bad movie watch. If you're the kind of person who does not like thinks that this is a bad movie, then honestly, I would say absolutely go watch it to clown on it. I went into it thinking that that's what I would be doing, and then I just consistently enjoyed it. I was amused by it. It took some turns I didn't expect. Is it one of the greatest films of all time? No, and that is why I cannot say it's a rave, but it is a good time and you should watch it with your friends. I want it to be a rave. It is rewatchable to me. I've watched it a couple few times now since the first a time I watched few? a couple few. <laughs> And it feels relatively rewatchable. And yeah. so that is a big part of being a rave for me. I think there are a few things in it, though, that stop it from getting all that way. But probably most of all is the severed mannequin hand and the orange spooge. And the spooge. orange spooge and just the weird, like the uh, the production values bring it down. Yeah, it is a fun movie, though. Like, don't get me wrong, super fun movie. I can't believe I had never really heard of it until this point. How is this, A, not a movie that everyone knows? And B, how is this not a movie that that has you know not gotten How's remade. How's not a movie that you know? Oh yeah, it should get remade, right? I think there's a demand for that kind of thing now. Like, and people love crossover movies, 
like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And, like, give us this. Just to add real quick, there was in 2016 oh, a TV series that was going to be done by Kevin Williamson. Yeah. From Scream and yeah. otherwise, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they were canceled after five episodes. Bummer. Maybe they just didn't understand what they had. You know what I mean? Maybe no. they didn't do it right. It's like the rock and roll music in Back to the Future. You guys, you guys aren't are ready, ready for this, this but your kids are going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. Well, Charlotte, thank you again, as always, for coming and sitting in the hot studio and talking. It's like a normal studio right now. Oh, good. And talking uh, stuff with me and talking about 1979 movies like this with me. I love it. Tell everybody listening, what do we need to know about you? What you got going on? Where can we find you? I know you're on the TikToks. We do know that. I am on the TikToks. I have my very first audio book out. Another delightful little read called Pride and Paranormal. You can find that on all of the places. It's it's Pride and Prejudice in the modern day, but everybody is like witches and warlocks and it's not like super sexy, but it is really fun. I have another audiobook project out. It's a book of short stories called We Will All Go Down Together, and it's creepy horror. Yeah. Look me up on the audibles and also on the TikToks is Kavatica. I have you, merch. And, <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing it right now, actually. Buy the merch. I've got buy the merch. Uh, read more books. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, audiobook narrator, TikToker, and podcast producer Charlotte Moore Lambert. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. Subscribe today to Subgenre on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or anywhere else you can binge shows like ours. When you do, and become part of our fans, The Good World, you'll find all of our brand new episodes, some classic ones, and some really great bonus content there to tide you over. Now is the time for all good people to come to the aid of their favorite podcast. Help us keep the show growing and find more listeners. Tell everyone in this or pretty much any other timeline about our show and, and leave your five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. Got some cash burning a hole in your pocket? Support Subgenre with your donation at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta thing, and who knows what else by now, all at SubgenrePod. Time is running out on season three, but it's not done yet. More new episodes are on their way, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, please continue to remember we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.